Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. It's so good to be here. Yeah, I think it probably has been about 10 years I've been coming up here, ever since I was 15. And um, <laughs> come on, come on. That's, that's unkind, uh, but fair. Um, yeah, so it's great to be here and it's great to be kicking off School of Theology. I did put my notes somewhere. There you go. That will help us all. Um, and thanks, Tom, for just introducing everything. And uh, I love the fact there's been some kind of cabinet reshuffle and Andy's out and Tom's in and we won't ask too many questions about that. But um, it's, it's great to be here. And uh, I don't know where you're all from, um, probably from various different places, different churches. Uh, but I hope that this will be a great opportunity for me to get to know you, you to get to know me a little bit and for us to get to know one another. And for us to learn together, uh, and probably we've come from similar-ish churches, but maybe churches with different emphases and different practices, and maybe we'll actually explore some of that today, uh, and maybe different relationships with the Bible as well, whether to do with the church tradition we've grown up in, or just our own experience of reading the Bible. Um, and just to really underline what Tom said, often when I teach this day, maybe we've got more people, it's a bit more structured, and so it's a lot sort of driven from the front. Today, smaller numbers, I think we can be really interactive. So I'm totally happy to have questions at any point, stop and have conversations. If things just make no sense to you, uh, please let me know, because there's nothing worse than me thinking, ah, oh, yes, I'm, I'm smashing it. Everyone's with me. And you're all thinking, not a clue. <laughs> like, you lost me in the first three minutes. Like, um, are you really 50, 25 years old? Just like, ask questions, not maybe about my age, uh, but <laughs> ask questions about anything. And uh, we will have time for some group work. Um, but actually, just first of all, I'd love to give you a moment for discussion. Um, and maybe it just impairs or reflect by yourself if this is easier but I'd like you just to take a moment to think what is your relationship with the Bible and I know what the answer is meant to be <laughs> um, and you know what the answer is meant to be uh, it's meant to be something that we love and, and really nourishes us and it's the word of God and it shapes us and and we love being in it all the time and that sort of thing but that's not always the case and um, by virtue of you being here on a day like this I take it that you have some passion for the Bible and some desire to get to know it better to get to go God through it better uh, but I think it's worth acknowledging that for some people uh, maybe many people our relationship with the Bible is not straightforward some people absolutely love it and always have some people have come to love it through a season of difficulty some people honestly just find it completely baffling or rather than baffling actually find it troubling and it's worth just being honest about that because the word thing to do is to spend two years uh, with us just pretending it's the most easy glorious wonderful book and you sitting there thinking actually it's quite hard for me and I've got issues with the Bible so what I'd love to do is just take a couple of minutes um, maybe just talk in pairs and just share maybe what's been your journey with the Bible how have you come to feel about it uh, what's what have been the difficulties uh, what are the things that you love about it um, that is a hugely open-ended question but we'll give you just five minutes so maybe let's say two minutes each that clearly doesn't work does it two and a half <laughs> uh, my maths is strong and <laughs> two and a half minutes each or however it works out just chat between you and um yeah be as honest as you can as self-reflective as you can and then maybe i'll get a couple of people to share before we dive into the book itself over to you five minutes ish okay 
let's, uh, let's come back together. And um, I don't know how you found that. Often I, I'm not sure that we are self-reflective and actually stop and ask us questions like that, particularly over things that we know we're meant to know a particular answer. We're meant to think about the Bible a particular way. But actually just stopping and being honest about how we really find it and how our journey has been can be quite enlightening, actually. And hearing other people's stories can be as well. So uh, we're not going to hear from everyone, but did anyone have any particular thoughts they just wanted to share, just like a snippet of um, that sort of summarise your own relationship or your journey with the Bible? Yes. Mm. Like Labrador's are, and they yep. just walk it down. And she's had various medical problems recently, which means that she can't always smell the same. Mm. And it's put her off food. You have to kind of hand feed the morsels to remind her yeah. what food tastes like. Yeah. And then she'll eat again. Yeah. And I feel like I sometimes have that kind of relationship with mm. now, where mm. if I remember what it tastes like, if I remember how nourishing it is, yeah. then I'm going to get into it again and wish there was more. Huh. Yeah. There are so many times when yeah yeah that's a brilliant metaphor that's really yeah fascinating thank you welcome oh, oh i'm so sorry you're the unlucky ones yeah definitely um <laughs> welcome come on in uh, we are just, it's a, now's a good time actually to come in, we're just discussing how we feel about the Bible, our relationship with the Bible, that sort of thing. So feel free just to settle down, grab drinks if you want, you're not going to disturb me, don't worry. Um, thank you for sharing that, I appreciate that, and I certainly resonate with that. that yeah. Anyone else? Any other, anyone else want to share? Yes? No. Yeah. Um, I'm saying, I'm a bit Yeah. Rather than making a conscious effort to listen to what God's saying through. Yeah. Yeah. I, think, I don't know whether this is going to help us or whether you make it worse. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope <laughs> it'll make it a whole lot worse. <laughs> no, I really hope uh, that it will make it better or, or it will give you uh, other opportunities to do that. I mean, my. What I love about teaching on this sort of course, just to let you guys know, is that it isn't purely academic. And I, I have, part of my journey is that I, um, I've done a master's in theology and I did it at a largely secular university where people teaching me would not even be professing Christians. And, and so I, I definitely kind of get the academic world. And what I really love is taking the good of that world and applying it to a world where people, for, for whom the Bible is actually living and active and powerful and they want to know how God is speaking and so marrying those two is a challenge and I found that a challenge as well so I totally resonate with that um, my hope is that we will go away strengthened in both those areas that you will get something maybe a bit more academic than you would in certain settings but also like I want us to encounter God um, through this so yeah thank you for sharing that I appreciate that uh, any other any other things otherwise we'll just sleep in Sometimes, like, uh, I, I like reading Christian books because they have the Bible, but they've also got a lot of the um, kind of processing it, and they, they've done the how does this apply yeah. to me yeah. part. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I think it takes me a lot of effort and a lot of work to actually sit down and 
Yeah. And be like, no, I, I want to be that for myself mm. and for my relationship with God. Yes. Rather than almost being, yeah, yeah. in the bed. Yeah. Um, and I guess yeah. that kind of happens at church as well. Like mm. I kind of want to come to yep. be fed by the sermon. Um, but actually, like, how am I doing that through the week? How am I yeah. also diving deep yeah. into it? Great. Anyone else resonate with that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, I agree. One of the things that I've found probably over the last five, six, seven years is also putting it into context, mm. I've found. Because I think I've, when I was younger, I've probably read it and taken it in non-academically. I read it from probably the flip side of that coin mm. and spending time actually looking at history, looking at actually what's being said. Yeah. Just makes me look God more. Because you kind of, Great. you're marrying two things up and it all of a sudden you go, okay, that's why that needed to be said. That's why... This is what yes. that's the heart condition that yeah. you're actually dealing with. Yeah, um, that's great. That really that's that, that's actually not where I thought you were going to go with it because many people, when they talk about um, uh, coming to study the Bible academically as like a later stage of the process, what they often say is, and then that became troubling for me <laughs> rather than that actually became strengthening for me. And that that's often people's experience and that may be people in the room and... and in some sense, although it's never been a major crisis for me, that's been my experience as well. So having, I grew up knowing the Bible stories that you get in the picture books, which are quite limited, aren't they? Um, and, uh, and, and I love them, but I went to a church that never really encouraged me to read the Bible myself, um, age of 12. It was a very, very traditional church. I mean, we sang songs in Latin. I had no idea what was going on. Uh, but I got paid to sing in the choir. So that, I got paid to sing in church. The trade-off was I had to wear a dress. But, that's, um, uh, but you know, that was my experience. And then um, about age 12, I started to read the Bible for myself as I went through confirmation classes. No idea what to do with it um, at all. And didn't really feel like I got a lot of help, actually. Um, when I went to university, I think that's the time where faith really became alive for me. And I started like the Labrador, just wolfing down all this, this Bible. And I felt like I got some tools that helped me and it was really genuinely nourishing and really helpful. Um, and, and I loved it. Uh, but actually what I think I struggled with was um, not so much actually the Bible, but how to read it and when to read it and how much to read it. And I found that people were telling me, this is how you have a quiet time. And, and I suddenly was just crushed, not by the Bible, but by the discipline and the, the particular way that you had to approach it that I just found really strange and, and guilt-inducing, I guess. Um, so I kind of wrestled with that more than actually the text. And then in later years, um, having actually started to be someone who teaches the Bible on courses like this and in churches, and I've been a teaching pastor at a church in London for 12 years, and um, I, I decided to do a master's in theology, like I said, at a largely secular ac uh, academic institution, and suddenly all these questions being thrown at you that you haven't thought about before, um, often by skeptical people, can really shake you, or it can make you feel strengthened. And so just wrestling with some of that. It's a, it's a journey that changes and recognising that in different seasons of life we will approach the scriptures in different ways and we'll approach different parts of the scriptures in different ways and some bits will resonate with you more than others. I think it's okay to be honest about that um, because this book is not straightforward. It is, in some sense, meditation literature that we're meant to ponder over, uh, over a whole lifetime. Every day, every night, like Tom was reading in Psalm 1, we're meant to meditate on it. Uh, and, and I think it's over a lifetime that it shapes us. But as we walk through difficult seasons and easy seasons in all of our life, so too it can be with our life with the Bible. Um, none of that at all was in my plan or my notes, so I'll be radically cutting bits of this day to fill up that half an hour we just spent. But I hope that that is fruitful, because thinking about how we approach the Bible is really important. 
uh, like I said, growing up, I knew certain things about the Bible and certain stories. Um, but I, I guess the way I approached it was I, I was literally told the Bible is basic instructions before leaving Earth. Anyone else heard that? Like, that's what I was told. I literally thought that's what the word Bible meant. <laughs> um, basic instructions before leaving Earth. That's what I was told. And so I was taught to approach the Bible like this kind of guide for life, um, which I now find quite problematic because, A, I'm not anticipating leaving this Earth. I think Jesus is coming back to make this Earth new. And B, if these are the basic instructions, I do not want to see the advanced ones because this is complicated stuff. And I didn't know what to do with it. And various people tried to explain to me different ways of approaching the Bible. And so in different phases, I saw it different ways. And the way you think of this book and what kind of document it is, it shapes the way that you approach it and whether you find that easy or difficult. So I think for some people, they consider this really to be a legal document or a collection of laws and a moral code. And yes, you can definitely say that is the case for many bits of it, but there are bits of this that are not like any legal document I have ever seen. Like uh, we recently bought a house and you go through all the legal documents and they suddenly don't just break into poetry. <laughs> like they're, they're pretty rigid. Like they tell you what you can and can't do and they're very strict and they're very sparse with their words because they want to be very particular. The Bible is not all like that. There are songs and there's narrative and there's beauty and there's artistry to it. Uh, sorry if you're a lawyer here in the room, but your work may not be as beautiful or artistic as this. Very important, but not the same. Um, some people think of it as a, an instruction manual, like how to get the best out of life. Again, like something went wrong in our car. I had to get out the instruction manual. It doesn't just burst into poetry at times. It's, it's very straight to the fact. It's like, do this. Like, this is not exactly an instruction manual, although there are instructions within it. If you are looking at this, like the kind of thing you think, oh, I've got a problem with X, I turn to this page and I get the answer, it's not going to work for you. Or it might work for a season, but then you hit things that just don't seem to work. Some people think of this as a love letter from God to us. And again, like that makes sense of whole swathes of this book, but I have never written or received a love letter that tell me what to do with mildew in my house or... Um, uh, Beloved, <laughs> when I think of you, I, I have to say, actually, if an ox gores your neighbour, like, it, like it, it, bits of it do read like a love letter, but you can't approach the whole thing like this because it's way more complex. It's actually, rather than being one book, it's a library of books. It's 66 very different books um, that have completely different styles. And in just the same way that if you walk into a library, you can't expect to take a book off that shelf and a book off that shelf and apply them in the same way. So too, with this book, we need, a, like, we need multiple different sets of skills in order to understand it. That said, the difference between this and a library is if I go into a library and I pick a book off there and a book off there, I don't expect the characters to cross over or I don't expect them to, to be unified. I mean, I could pick two things off the same shelf, the same subject, and they disagree fundamentally. Whereas with the Bible, it is both a library and a unified library in so much as it is diverse, but it all comes together to share one story, which is the story of God. And as I say, none of that was in my notes, so we, we will be way behind, but that's fine. Um, next page, don't turn there yet, actually, in your notes. Um, but the Bible is, as I've said, a diverse library of very different books. And there are all sorts of different types of books. Narrative, law, wisdom, poetry, prophecy, apocalyptic, gospel, and epistle. Just throw out a few books that come to mind as I talk about each of these um, genres. Uh, what, what comes to mind for you when you think about the narrative books? Just shout them out. Esther, yeah, great. Daniel. Daniel, interesting. Okay, so, so this is and this is the complication here, and uh, you're not wrong, um, because half of it is actually 
arguably all of it is some sort of narrative, isn't it? But there's crossovers between the genres. And you're reading bits and you're thinking, this seems like straight narrative. And suddenly it's just like, and I had this vision of these crazy beasts. And now, oh, well, we've moved into something different here. So a genre like apocalyptic, sort of like, is Daniel a prophet? Is it narrative? Is it apocalyptic? Is it it's more like revelation? It's complicated, isn't it? And so we need to think. But yes, you're right. It is narrative. Um, a couple of others. Exodus. Exodus. Yeah. Kings. 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 Joshua. Joshua. Brilliant. Okay. So all these narrative um, things. Let's pick up on a couple of those, though, because actually the next category is law. And Exodus, half of it is narrative, and then suddenly it shifts gear and it's law. <laughs> and if you approach the whole thing like law, um, actually you're not going to get through it properly. Uh, it's going to be quite confusing. If you approach the whole thing like narrative, suddenly you're going to be shocked when it's like, and do this and don't do this. So even within books, there are different genres, aren't there? Um, so law might be second half of Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. Uh, wisdom books, what comes to mind? Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, yep, so, yeah. yeah. Bits of the Psalms, not all of the Psalms. Job, um, Song of Songs, does that fit in there? Or is that poetry? Poetry is Psalm, Song of Sol Solomon, Lamentations, where does that fit? Uh, prophecy, Shout out a few prophets. Yeah, <laughs> Daniel part two, yeah. Jeremiah, Isaiah, yeah, Ezekiel. Yeah, great, loads of prophets. Uh, I'm not going to get you to name them all. Apocalyptic, as I said, Daniel. Um, all our examples have been Old Testament at this point, isn't it? That's interesting. Hmm. Just told that. Uh, gospel. <laughs> Give me, say, four examples. <laughs> Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Give me a fifth example. <laughs> Sorry? Acts. Yes. I'm glad you weren't something going to be a Thomas or like one of the. Uh, yeah, Acts. Yeah, why, why do we think of Acts as. It's narrative, isn't it? But it's also part two of Luke. So it's, it sort of fits with the genre of. I'll be back actually to teach the Gospels later in this course, um, hopefully, unless they do a bad job today. But like we can unpack the Gospels, and the Gospels are another genre of their own. And then epistles, letters, uh, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, etc., etc. You may look at page two, you've got all the answers right. Um, but what's really interesting, actually, is if you look at the shape of the Bible, you find that it's way more diverse in the Old Testament than the New Testament. And that may be part of the reason why we find the Old Testament a little bit harder to get our heads around. But of the 502 chapters, oh, sorry, no, there are 502 chapters of the Bible that are narrative. That's 43% of the Bible is either historical accounts, parables or biographies. 33% is poetry. Songs, wisdom literature, some of the prophets. 300 chapters, 24% is prose, discourse, speeches and letters. The majority of the Bible is a mixture of narrative and poetry, which is fascinating. When we think of this as a book that is teaching you how to live, actually the way it teaches you how to live is predominantly through narrative and through poetry, which I just think is interesting to log. The way in which it teaches us and shapes our lives may not be as simple as we might hope it is, like, do this and you'll be okay. Actually, it's far more dynamic and it requires a different sort of level of artistic interpretation than we may typically think. Now, what I want to do is, in, essentially today, I want us to think about how we can unpack the Bible. Um, and I'm happy to go anywhere with questions, uh, but I'm going to kind of focus in on the idea of the Bible as a story, um, primarily as God's story, but then a story which we need to apply to ourselves. So we'll think of it 
largely in two sections, God's story and our story. Uh, But as we go, as I say, do feel free to ask questions on anything. But what I want to do, first of all, given that this is the beginning of a course, which for this year, at least, you will largely be focused in the Old Testament. I want us to think a little bit about the Old Testament and how it hangs together as a story. And I think this will help us to see how the story unfolds. So page three. What is the Bible and how is it constructed? I mean, there's loads that we could go into about how the Bible was put together and happy to talk about that if that will be useful to you. Um, But I think it's clear that the Bible didn't just fall from the sky, leather bound and (laughs) with indexes and the words of Jesus in red. Like it didn't just fall from the sky like that fully formed. There was some kind of editing process that went went through over time. Uh, In fact, probably multiple phases of editing and shaping and putting the books in the right order and uh, all that sort of thing. And and I don't think we should be troubled by that uh, because God has worked through human beings to put this book in the form that he wanted it into our hands. But it's worth looking at the Old Testament and recognising that the Old Testament we have is actually shaped a bit differently from the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament that the Jewish people had. And if you look here on page three, you'll see that I've put here the Hebrew Bible on the left and the Christian ordering of the Old Testament on the right. Um, The Hebrew Bible is often referred to as the Tanakh, uh, using the letters T, N and K with some A's put in there to make it pronounceable. Otherwise, just would sound ridiculous. Uh, And I explain what that means in a moment. Uh, But if you just take a glance down the order of the books in the Hebrew Bible and then compare them to the order of what we know is the Christian Old Testament in the right, you'll see that there are some similarities, but also some differences. Um, What what do you notice, just taking a glance through? What are the first things that kind of leap out at you? Hmm, yeah. So for us, they're way down the bottom, aren't they, in the section called the Prophets, uh, and they're in the section called the Prophets in the Hebrew Bible as well, uh, but the latter prophets, they're sort of grouped together, aren't they? Yeah. I just noticed that, you know, you've got, we've got like Ruth and Esther, mm. like female sort of historical mm. people, and the Hebrew Bible hasn't so much. Uh, it's, still, it's still there, actually, it's just in a different place. So um, Ruth is down there in the Ketuvim, the writings. So actually all the books are the same, they're just in different places. So yes. Um, and no, I won't say that, but <laughs> I'll go off down a rabbit warren. But actually, I think there are, th- there are things that we miss in our ordering that are there in the Hebrew Bible that actually emphasise the women in slightly different ways. Um, maybe I'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, yes, they are all there, unless I've missed them out. No, Ruth and Esther, both in the Ketavim. Yeah, great. Any other sort of thing, thoughts that... Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? So all the books we consider history, so Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, etc., etc., they're there, but where are they? They're in the section known as the prophets. Those guys weren't prophets. <laughs> what is going on there? That's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Any other thoughts? The 12 that are grouped together? Hmm, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 So actually the groupings of the, the, the text are slightly different. So they would have been on scrolls and some of the things that we separate out as two books might have been together as one scroll. So one or two Samuel, one or two Kings, one or two Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, 
actually a group together, uh, and certain other collections would have been put together. So the, the scroll of the 12 was probably 12 that were held together in one collection as well. Yeah, yeah. Great question. Let's get to that. Let's, let's go straight to that, in fact. Um, so the reason that the Hebrew Bible is shaped the way it is is because it wants to tell us something of the story that is different from how we tend to approach it. So I think there is a, there is a sense to the way that our Christian Old Testament is ordered. Um, generally, things are grouped by style. Um, so you have the Pentateuch, the first five books, which are like the foundation story, and then you go into the history, and that kind of makes sense because chronologically it carries on through. And then poetry feels different, so it's grouped slightly differently so that you interpret it in a different way. And then the prophets, again, um, feel like they need a different type of interpretation and they're pointing forward to the New Testament. But also some of the prophets speak at moments that come in the history books as well. So it can be a bit confusing. And I think the good thing about it is it helps us to engage with the text in different ways uh, appropriately. But the tricky thing is that it can actually lose the flow of the narrative. In the Hebrew Bible, in the Tanakh, they group things slightly differently. So you've got these three categories, which are known as Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim. So the Torah is the same as we have the Pentateuch, the first five books, which is basically the foundation story of Israel. Uh, so there's creation, fall, the Abrahamic covenant, Exodus, law, the forming of the nation of Israel. And it's worth noticing that actually the word Torah, when we think about it, the, the word that often comes to mind and the word that people use is law. We often say the Torah is the law. Well, it contains laws, but actually the word is broader than that. It means instruction. And I think that's important because sometimes we hear law and we hear it a particular way, which is do this, don't do this, or you'll be punished. Actually, it's, it's broader than that. And so um, I can't remember what did you read from the ESV this morning, Tom? Yeah, probably. Definitely look like an ESV guy. Um, uh, like Psalm 1, I'm pretty sure it says, well, let's have a look at Psalm 1. Uh, yeah, his delight, Psalm 1, verse 2, his delight is in the law of God. That word is actually, oh, in fact, yes, the footnote says, or instruction, because it's the Hebrew word Torah. Um, we hear law and we hear it in a particular way. Actually, Torah means, it means instruction. It includes law, but law is only actually a part of it. And if you think of it as law, then actually, I mean, it's hard to know how Genesis and the first half of Exodus actually fits within that category. But seeing this as a foundational instructional story uh, just shapes and changes our way of thinking about it a little bit. But then we come to this section known as the Nevi'im, the prophets. And as we've sort of noticed, a lot of the books in this category are books that we would call history books. And I think the reason is because the, 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 the arrangers of the Tanakh want us to know that they are telling history, but they are telling it from the perspective of the prophets and with its prophetic significance. So some of the stories include prophets, but not all of them. Um, maybe the prophets were involved in somehow shaping and arranging the stories. And I think the point of this collection is to say, not just this is what happened, but and this is what it means. This is its prophetic significance. This is where it's going. So I've just been reading uh, 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles, which is not my favourite part of the Bible. It's 
pretty hard going at times uh, and has taken me a very long time to get through. Uh, but what I've noticed again and again is that there are moments where it's talking about some battle or some genealogy or something and it says, for more details on this, check out the scroll of X. And, and I find myself thinking, thank God that scroll is not in the Bible as well, because I don't want more details than are already there. But what's interesting is that these books that we approach as history books are actually saying, we're not just here to do boring history. Like, if you want the details and the historical stuff, there are other things you can go to for that. What I'm talking about here is the meaning. And so seeing these books, not just as history books, but prophetic history books is really important because they're trying to draw out the significance of the text, where the story has come from and where it is going. So it's telling history from the perspective of the prophets. And I think the reason why this group is divided somewhat uh, is because there are actually, you've got the books of the former prophets, which largely correspond to our historical uh, books. And then the later prophets are what we might consider the prophets. So people who are prophesying more. <laughs> and there is that kind of division within this category. Um, but for me, that's just really reframed the way I approach the history books. Because I can just feel like, man, this is dull, and I never go on with history. But actually thinking this is not just about the details, this is about the significance of history, actually changes the way you read it. And it helps you to see why there are certain things emphasised and certain things left out. It's not because they don't care about those things, it's just that they're not the main emphasis of what the writers and the arrangers are trying to do. Does that make sense? Great. And then the third category is the ketuvim, uh, the writings, which is kind of like a junk drawer <laughs> for all the other bits. And uh, so you've got in there the poetic books, uh, you've got Ruth, you've got um, the wisdom literature, you've got Daniel, which is sort of apocalyptic. Um, you've got Ezra and Nehemiah and Chronicles, which feel like they could be in a history section, but it's kind of a collection. But together, they, they sort of express this aching, this longing for the fulfillment of the foundation story that was started at the beginning and has seemed to go horribly wrong. So I think together, I mean, I'm not saying let's read the Bible like that, but I am saying that there's something that's often lost in the way we approach the Old Testament, which I think the Jewish people really got, which is that this is a unified story building to a particular climax, the climax of which, spoiler alert, is Jesus. <laughs> and I think that actually the arrangement there really helps us to pick that up in a way that sometimes our Bible might obscure. Yeah. yeah it's quite, uh, mm. it, it's they, they have a certain sense about, you know, up until, I don't know, David Solomon, everything was, was fine, hunky-dory, and after that it all kind of went a little bit downhill, and so that's where the inflection point is for former and latter, or is it, do you think it's just an arbitrary, oh, well, this is the early history, and these guys were... I, I think it's probably more that... Um, that they are dividing their time around <laughs> significant event of the the exile, um, the destruction of the temple. Um, so I think you come to sort of the end of Kings, and that's kind of where you end up. Um, so yes, related to David and the greats there. Um, but I think that that was such a shocking seismic moment that everything kind of changed around there. Um, and I think they probably also want to emphasise the fact that. Um, the latter prophets are what we might strictly call the books of prophets, um, whereas the other books are more the historical books too. So I think it's two things going on there probably. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to see something super geeky? Yes. <laughs> Some of you not convinced. <laughs> Go to the next page. Um, <clears throat> this is super geeky, but if you look at the hinge points of the Tanakh, 
um, you find that basically you read the stories, I don't know if you ever noticed this, there are bits that just feel like they kind of don't belong there. Like they're just stuck on like a sticky note at the end. You think, why is it there? It's actually there to help tip us over to the next bit. You know, like when you... Um, when you watch a TV show and uh, you, you kind of get to the end and the credits roll and then you've got some like post-credit scene uh, which is like sets up the next one or like Marvel films do this all the time or, or you get a trailer of the next episode. I think there are bits of the Bible like that that are meant to connect us to the next episode. The funny thing is that the next episode may be somewhere different in the storyline and the way it's arranged. So if you look at the Tanakh you will find that at the beginnings and ends of the different sections there are like these little sticky notes that connect us together. This is super geeky, but the end of Deuteronomy, which is the end of both our Pentateuch and the Torah, the instructions, you've got Deuteronomy chapter 34, 10 to 12. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Since then, since, since then, <laughs> when was this book written? Um, that gives us a clue that actually someone is attaching something to it or, or shaping a final version of it probably quite a lot later. Because if Moses had just died and then someone said, well, since the days of Moses, we literally haven't buried him yet. Like, that doesn't make sense. Plus, actually, we tend to think of the books as being the books of Moses. Yes, Moses shaped them, but probably there was some kind of editorial process and that you get a hint that someone a long time later is looking back and saying, this is where the foundation story leaves us. And since that point, however long ago that might have been, no one has arisen like Moses. Why make that kind of comment? Well, it says... Uh, no one's risen like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all these signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, uh, to Pharaoh and all his officials and to his whole land. No one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. And that's kind of how Deuteronomy and the Pentateuch or the, the Torah comes to an end. There's this sense of longing for one to arise like Moses. And then you turn the page in our Bible, or although, of course, you wouldn't have done that, you would have picked up the next scroll uh, and you get Joshua, the beginning of the Nevi'im. And what you find is that it's this, this long description of Joshua being like a new Moses. And you're thinking, great, is he the one to come? Is he the new Moses? And you quickly find out that in many ways he, he isn't. So actually, if you read Joshua 1, and we won't read it all, but it really emphasizes this sense of like Joshua being like a new Moses. It says, Moses, my servant, is dead goes on and explains it. Then it says, I will give you every place, this is to Joshua, I will give you every place where you set your foot as I promised Moses, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. Keep this book of the law always on your lips, meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. So this is how the Nevi'im begins. And so you're thinking, okay, is Joshua the one? Or is it someone who's going to come after Joshua? You're set up longing for this one who is going to come like Moses. And you get a sense that if you keep the book of the law that Moses gave always on your lips, meditate on it day and night, then you will be prosperous and successful. Hold that thought in your head. The end of the Nevi'im is Malachi, uh, which is the end of our whole Old Testament, actually. And what we find there is it says this, Malachi chapter 4, Remember the law of my servant Moses... So it takes you back to the Torah. The decrees and the laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So you get a sense that at the end of the whole history, they're still looking back to Moses and going, you still got to keep that law that Moses gave. And actually, he was still waiting for one like Moses but actually, it doesn't say, and one like Moses is to come, it says, I'm going to send you an Elijah. 
So it's like a new figure has been thrown into the job description of this one who is to come. He's like Moses, and kind of like Joshua, but he's also like Elijah, and arguably like a whole load of other people who we've met through the Nevian, like David, for example. Uh, so what we find is that as we go through the story, this longing for the one who is to come grows from being, it's Moses, it's also the one like Moses, it's like David, it's a kingly person, it's a prophet, it's like Elijah, and it grows and grows and grows, and it's almost like this job description that just becomes too big for any human being to fulfill. Spoiler alert. Jesus is the one who fulfills it all. But you get this growing sense of longing and it ties back to the Torah to make you realize that from the prophet's perspective, this whole sort of section of history has been growing out of and building upon the foundational story of, of Genesis to Deuteronomy. And there are a few interesting things about this as well. If you look at Malachi 4, uh, Moses was a prophet sent to perform signs and wonders and rescue the people of Israel from Egypt and God promising a new prophet who will do the same. Although interestingly in Malachi, it's not about rescuing people from Egypt, it's about rescuing Israel from themselves <laughs> and actually uh, threatening destruction if they don't. But you get the sense that all the way through the Nevi'im, the job description has grown and grown and grown. They are still longing for the one who is to come. And then you begin the Ketavim, the poetic books, and we read, as we have done already today, Psalm 1, Blessed is the one who does not walk in the step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of God, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. Does any of that language sound familiar to you? I mean, yes, we heard it at the beginning of the day. So, <laughs> yes, Tom said something like that. <laughs> like, did anyone else say something like that? God said it to Joshua, exactly. So that phrase, um, meditate on it day and night, uh, is exactly there, whose delights in the law of the Lord. That phrase appears in two places in the Bible. They're both on this bit of paper. <laughs> there seems to be a connection here. You've got this longing for one like Moses, and then Joshua, is he going to be the ideal person that we have waited for? No, he isn't. Neither are any of the people here, but then the poets open by saying, we're still longing for that ideal one who is like Joshua, who is like Moses, who is like David and Elijah and all these sort of people rolled into one. So what I'm trying to say is that this whole thing has been constructed very deliberately uh, with God inspiring the whole process in order to show us that there is a deep longing that runs right through all of history for one who is to come. And all the way through, Every time you see a prophecy that seems unfulfilled and you get this longing for someone who could rescue us from this or do this or succeed in ways that this person failed, it's all getting put together into the job description, which, as I say, is too big for any person to, to, to fulfill. We'd be idiots to apply for it. <laughs> and yeah, many people try. Uh, and so you just get by the end this longing. Like, can anyone do this job? Can anyone fulfill this story? Surely not. Surely it's just too unwieldy and we've got thousands of people who've tried and have failed. And then Jesus says this back on the previous page, Luke 24. After his resurrection, he says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. This is what I told you when I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Notice the threefold division there. This is how Jesus read his Bible. He understood that it was in three sections. There was Moses, the Torah, there's the prophets, by which he doesn't mean just a few isolated verses in Isaiah that we pick out and read at Christmas. He means the whole prophetic significance of history and the Psalms, which is the principal book of the Ketuvim. 
He's saying this whole story, every bit of it, all pointed to me. It's all prophetic, and I am the one that it pointed to. Every longing that you had is fulfilled in me. Every person who failed, I am going to succeed where they failed. I am the summation of it all. I am the only one who can fit the job description that humanity has been longing for. I think that's beautiful. And too often, I think we can approach Jesus and his words about just fulfilling, the, fulfilling scripture as if what we're meant to do is go back and find a couple of clues, maybe, maybe a hundred or something, little specific things like he would do this or he would say this. We think, oh yeah, he fulfilled that. No, no, it's not just about isolated bits here and there. It's about the whole story. All the longings are fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Does that make sense? Great. Any questions on any of that? Does that seem just needlessly geeky and pointless, or does that actually kind of help you to think about the Old Testament as a story? Yeah. Yeah, good question. I think possibly... Well, there may be many reasons for it, but I think, I think one of the helpful things about it is that it does group things by genre. Um, so, we, so it helps us to know, okay, I can approach this group of texts in a particular way that's different from this group of texts. And I think that can be really useful. Um, and it was also written by people, who, or, or sorry, arranged by people who had the hindsight of knowing how Jesus fulfills it, so maybe they wanted to arrange it in a different type of way, but maybe had different... You know, when you are living a story and your story is incomplete and you are still living with the longings, then you're probably going to tell your story in a slightly different way. Um, so I think that the, the process of putting together the Tanakh was... It was a group of people who were clinging on to their identity in the face of, of pressure and oppression, and then Christians looking back with an easier life, are probably able to go, well, how would this suit me best? <laughs> and they reshape the story in a way that is probably more helpful for us with perhaps more of a modern mindset of this is here to instruct me as someone for whom the story is pretty much complete, which is different. Does that make sense? So I think... I mean, I, I, think, I think it can be helpful. I think there are different... I mean, I obviously... I haven't chopped up my Bible and shuffled, <laughs> shuffled the pages around because I, it, it kind of doesn't matter to me. Um, so long as I remember that this whole thing is a story and the way that I engage with it is not quite the way that Jesus or the original followers would have engaged with it. And so, so long as I am happy to get over the hurdle of, I mean, everything about it, like Jesus, they wouldn't have had it like this. So there's whole different things about the medium that it's shaped. It's not just the order of the books. It's the very fact that we can carry these around and have them on our phone changes the way we, we approach it. So, so in every area, in fact, we'll look at this in a moment, in every area, the way we approach this, we have to try and put ourselves into the feet of uh, a first century Jew. Um, and so for some people, that order can be really difficult because it can just cause problems. I'm totally happy with it because all the books are there. <laughs> um, but there are certain connections that you make only when you put the ordering the way that it is yeah. the original readers would have done it. So let me give you one example, which is to come back to the question about women. Um, I was preaching through uh, Ruth a couple of years ago and um, I, I, so someone pointed this out to me um, that in the Hebrew ordering, um, Ruth comes after Proverbs. So, uh, let me find Proverbs. So, one of the key words in Ruth, 
I'm in danger of giving you a 40-minute sermon, which is what I did before. I'm not going to do that. I'll try and say this in a couple of minutes. One of the th- key things in Ruth is that um, she basically lives at a time where there are many t- people, who, men who are unrighteous, uh, doing unrighteous things. Um, and Ruth is a- an incredibly righteous and courageous woman in the midst of people who are not acting that way, but should have been. Um, and the word that is used of her, the Hebrew word hail, it means um, a woman of valour. Um, actually, it doesn't mean a woman of valour, a person of valour. It was almost never applied to women. It was often applied to men, to warriors um, who won in battle. And the radical thing in Ruth is that it says a, a person of, you know, she is a woman of valour. She is a hail woman. Now, if you go back to Proverbs chapter 31, it describes this excellent wife or this excellent woman who can find um i found her stop looking she's mine (laughs) um but you know this perfect woman it describes her in many ways and she is a powerful woman like she she runs a business she has got authority people look to her she's just an incredible woman and it says uh where is it um she wears purple I know, that, was, that was brilliantly done, perfectly timed. Yes, I love the fact that you just put that jumper on to make that point and you're not going to be sweating through the day being like, I'm not giving it up. <laughs> I want to be the purple woman, no matter how hot I am. That's great. Brilliant. The, the word that the Hebrew uses at the end of, uh, in Proverbs 31, is a high-yield woman. Who can find? Who can find someone like this? Turn the page. What do you get? Ruth. <laughs> That's not a mistake. We lose it because we turn Proverbs 31 round and we get Ecclesiastes, everything is meaningless, <laughs> which is not that joyful. But they turn the page, a higher woman who can find. There she is. She's Ruth. Oh, and how does Ruth end? The lineage of Ruth takes us straight through to Jesus as well. Like this is beautiful in the way that it's arranged. And there are all sorts of things like that that you miss. I mean, it's not worth chopping up your Bible and shifting it around <laughs> just to get that. But it's... But it is worth recognising that the Bible we engage with is different to the Bible that Jesus engaged with and that the early followers of Jesus engaged with. Um, well, I suppose it's, it's like the, the Christians are watching the TV series, whereas the Jews are the actors in it. Huh. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, we look back with the hindsight of editing and um, yeah. shaping and, yeah. yeah. Okay, how are we doing? I think it's sort of time for a break, but it's also sort of time for a workshop. (laughs) So what if we roll the two together? Should we try and get coffee and talk? Hopefully this will be quite... Will that be all right? What I'd love to do then... So let's skip the next slide and go to page six. And um, I'll just set up this question, and then I think I'll give you like maybe 20 minutes to do a mixture of things, which is... Go to the toilet if you wish, do anything you wish, (laughs) Uh, get coffee, get pastries, those sorts of things, and then have a discussion um, on your tables. So use that time however you want. Here's, Here's my premise. The Bible is an ancient collection of texts, and reading it is like taking a journey to a foreign land. Um, A good traveller will not just assume that everything in a land they're going to will be familiar to them. Um, No judgment upon you, but if you are the kind of person that travels to... Spain or you know Italy or Egypt and seeks out a Starbucks and a McDonald's as soon as you get off the plane. <laughs> Some, something's not quite right there. <laughs> um, with I mean, like I say, no judgment. <laughs> Little bit of judgment. 
Like, but, but actually, to be a good traveller um, is not to go and expect, now this place must now conform to what I find comfortable in life, right? Yeah. Um, so, a good traveller will make preparations before travelling to make sure that they can understand where they are travelling and, uh, to and how to get the best out of that. So, here's the, the sort of thought experiment. Imagine you were about to take a journey to a foreign land what information would you need before you go and what might you need to take with you? Imagine you're journeying to a foreign land. What information would you need before you go and what might you need to take with you? And think about that very literally. And then how might that metaphor apply to our reading of scripture? So maybe think of that in two phases. If you were wanting to be a good traveller, going to places you'd never been to before, what would you need to know? What would you need to take? And then how might that apply to our reading of scripture? Does that make sense as a kind of thought experiment? Great, so what we'll do is let's come back here at about 25 past. So feel free to get some fresh air, go to the toilet, grab drinks, grab pastries, whatever. Think about that in groups or pairs or whatever works for you. And then we'll reconvene at 25 past. Okay. Great, let's make a start again. Uh, Good pastries, good coffee, good discussion. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> people preferred the pastries and the coffee. <laughs> just, I mean, just going on the number of people who... Yeah, um, great. Right, so let's, let's think about this question. Um, imagine you are a traveller going to a foreign nation. How do you prepare? What do you need to know? What do you need to take with you? Um, let's start there. Like, throw out something. What, what do you need to know uh, or do or think about the weather? <laughs> Laws. Okay, let's take one at a time, and we'll, I'll come to you secondly. That's a great one. Um, so weather. How might that apply to your view of scripture? <laughs> like, how, how, might you, how might you prepare that for... Uh, sorry, how might you take that metaphor of uh, preparing to go on a journey and uh, preparing for the weather and apply that to the way we read the Bible? So in terms of weather going on holiday, you think about what clothes you were taking. Ah. Yeah, yeah, a whole load of things. So you, you basically prepare yourself for somewhere being different to where, you, you know, yeah. I came up to Manchester, I forgot to bring my coat. Oh, that was a massive <laughs> fail. Uh, or shorts in, <laughs> back in home, and now it's just going to be wet and cold. So there you go. <laughs> um, and lovely. Um, but yeah, you, you prepare yourself differently for a whole load of different things. So, um, I mean, take clothing. Like, the clothing that we wear is different to the clothing that people would have worn in the biblical times. Why? Because... They don't live in Manchester <laughs> or Oxford, for example. Like they live in a different climate, a completely different place. And so that affects a whole load of different things, doesn't it? It does affect the clothes they wear. It affects the, the time of day they go out, because if it's hot at particular times of day, like some cultures have siestas, some cultures don't. That, that makes a huge change, doesn't it? If you go to Spain and you don't know that about the weather and how that affects people's working days, you might go out and find yourself shocked that you can't go to a shop and get what you want at a particular time because time is affected by weather and all sorts of things. So cultural uh, cultural things about clothing, about what you wear, what's appropriate to wear, what's not appropriate to wear, all these sorts of things are tied together. And when we come to scripture and there's loads of stuff about clothing or about practices to do with washing feet, yeah, or times of day where certain people are out and certain people aren't out, or all those sorts of things, yeah, we won't understand them unless we realise that this is a different climate to our climate. Brilliant place to start. Uh, sorry, the gentleman in blue, I've forgotten what your name was. 
Laws and customs, yeah, great. So you go to a different place and you have to recognize that they may have different laws and customs to what you have. Um, and that could be a whole load of things. Do you, like, it's helpful to know before you go somewhere, do they drive on the right or the left? <laughs> um, or what is legal here and not, not that I, I go to places thinking, what can I get away with there? <laughs> but, uh, but like certain things to do, I mean, laws of the road are a real key one. Like certain places you have to, like in America, you, you, ca you can't just roll over those kind of lines at a junction. Like even if there's nothing there, you have to come to a dead stop. And that's a very firm law. And that's not the case in other countries. And certain laws about going out at particular times or, or what you wear or, you know, all sorts of things um, are completely different. How does that apply to the way we think about scripture? What are some of the differences uh, that we may need to bear in mind? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, how that impacts... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so there may have been different laws and legal systems um, and things that were legal or illegal in that culture that are different to ours, uh, but also recognising that the law may have played a different role um, in their culture. So is, is the way that we conceive of law today the same as what's going on when we read the laws in the Bible. Like we tend to think um, the law is some text that exists somewhere that we can go and consult uh, and find out exactly what is true in a particular case and then we apply that in a court of law to a particular situation to say who's right and who's wrong. Whereas you read things in the law that feel a bit more like this, this is a bit more fluid and maybe they're not always applied in exactly the same way but there's something here that's more like this is wisdom for life and and it's, it's just different to how we think about law and I think that's important yeah to recognize yeah uh, other other sort of thoughts what do you need to yeah translator. translator because the language in the place that we're going to is not the same yeah yeah I mean, we Brits tend to just go and speak our same language and just speak it slightly lower, slightly louder. Yeah. But that, that doesn't work when you are... That doesn't really help you to be a good traveller, does it? And so recognising that the Bible was not written in English um, sounds obvious. Uh, and of course, we know that, but we can still come to it with unhelpful expectations that even though it wasn't written in English, we somehow expect all the idioms to make sense to us. Um, we can go too far with that metaphor because some people will feel like, oh, I can't engage with the text unless I know Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic and all these uh, sorts of things. And, and often preachers don't help with that because they're often going, oh, the Greek means this or the Hebrew means this. And you think, do you actually know that either? And what it can really do is it can create this barrier for normal people like us um, who just feel like, I I don't know the language. Does that mean I'm not able to engage with the text? And like most English translations are pretty decent, and we can talk about which ones are better than others if that helps. Um, but just recognizing that the language is different, and so there there may be some little things that are worth picking up. Like if I'm going to Italy, I don't need to know everything in it. I just need to know how to order a beer, and I'm fine. Like or, or whatever it happens to be, some basic terms. It can be really helpful to know that in order to engage with the scriptures. Uh, you don't need to know everything, but just idioms are important. You know, if you're travelling and I say, um, I really recommend you you uh, pack a load of thongs. <laughs> like it matters whether you're travelling to 
England or Australia because they're very different things. Like in Australia, they're footwear. In England, a thong is something completely different. So it matters knowing what a phrase means in the language or what an idiom means. That's obviously a stupid example, but there we go. Um, yeah, great. Any other thoughts? A map. Based on what you've said before about the layout of the Bible and mm. how it leads on, if you look at the Hebrew and yeah. the Old Testament and where it's going and where yeah. it's going next. Yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So knowing how to get around and navigate the geography is important. And I guess that works on multiple levels because if you if I'm going to a nation, I don't need to know everything about the nation, but I do need to know like where are some of the key points, like where am I flying into? <laughs> how am I getting to the place I'm staying? And maybe where are some of the key cities I might want to check out? And with scripture, you don't need to know everything about the layout, but it's helpful to know something about the layout. Um, essentially, if you, if you can know three places in the Bible, that sorts you for most of the Old Testament and probably most of the New Testament as well. Um, I wish I had a map. Like, imagine this is a map. <laughs> imagine this, this nothing is a map. Like, okay, I'm just doing it this way around for a moment. Basically, if you can know three places in the ancient world, it's really helpful. So Mesopotamia, Israel, and Egypt. And basically, the Old Testament cycles between these three. So you've got kind of Mesopotamia over here, where Garden of Eden and all that sort of stuff happened. Uh, and then Abraham gets called to go to the Promised Land, which is slightly to the west, down about here, uh, which is Israel. And so that's where he ends up. But actually, he dips into Egypt and then comes back here. And then his descendants go where? Egypt, sort of down here. Um, through Joseph, and they end up there with Moses, and God has to rescue them, and they get out of there, and they go <laughs> round and round and round and round, round in the wilderness, and they end up back here in the promised land, Israel, and they live there, and everything sort of goes well for a little bit, but not very long, and then everything goes badly, and they get sent into exile, where? Sort of back up here in Babylon, which is Mesopotamia, and in this area, and then God rescues from there, and they go back to here and, and not all of them make it back but basically three places and you know the old testament <laughs> uh, or you know the geography at least and that's really helpful to understand it happens in a relatively small place but then that affects the way you read language about going east or going west or oh i wonder if there's a metaphor going on there and, and then just simple things like knowing how far things are away from each other as well you know when it talks about people making a journey from here to here was that was that a 30-minute journey in a car? Oh, no, they didn't have a car. Like, was that a six-day journey that they had to make? Um, was it up hills? Was it flat the whole way? How would they have had to travel? Would they have done that on a donkey or would they have had to got a boat? Or like, was that a difficult journey? Would that have taken them through dangerous territory? Um, the kind of stuff that, as good travellers, we try and avoid in certain like, nations. Knowing those sorts of things are helpful. When you read the Psalms and it talks about this mountain up here and this mountain down here, it's like, would those mountains have represented something? And is there a reason why those names are used? Like often they just say, and this prophet said this at this place, and you just gloss over it because we don't know that place. But the name of that place may have history and meaning that the original readers would have got. Oh yeah, that's the place where this happened. Therefore, when the prophet says this, it's symbolic because it's like a recapitulation of something. So just knowing something of the geography and its history can be really helpful. Um, not that we have to hold it all in our minds, of course, but we just have to recognise that these places are not our places. And so when it talks about a journey or it talks about something, it's just worth going, I shouldn't impose my sort of Google Maps mind onto it and just go, oh, you could very easily make that journey and it would take you X number of minutes. It may have taken days. It may have been a real hardship. If someone makes a journey to go and visit someone, that could have been hugely costly. And you only know that by actually recognising their geography is not 
our geography. Does that make sense? Yeah. A whole load of other things, you know, time zone. Um, where, where are these people in salvation history? Where does this story come in the storyline of scripture? Um, I, did, I did an alpha course last year and we had this guy who was on Zoom and we had this guy who was uh, just sort of grappling with faith and decided he wanted to read the Bible and on alpha they talk about the Bible in one year app course they did because they created it and <laughs> they're selling this app and, and from it's free obviously but um and and it's a great app uh, but this guy decided that that's where he was going to start and so he started reading the bible in one year and the next week he was completely baffled because he was reading an old testament passage a new testament passage and a psalm every day and he thought that the, the order that they were presented him to him on the app were the order in which they were written and the story goes and because he wasn't like using a bible and flicking between the pages and even if you do that to be honest you don't really get a sense of the history he was completely baffled because the story made no sense to him of course he didn't it's like reading the chapters of a book in totally the wrong order but knowing like where does this come in the timeline uh, of scripture is just really important um so of course not a diss um the bible i think it's great but it's just it's just a we have to think about where, where does this fit within the storyline. We have to be responsible travellers, I guess. Um, what's culturally acceptable, what's not. Uh, you know, how, did, how did people process what was going on in their day? What were the gender norms or cultural norms? How do they differ from what we experience today? Political systems, who was in power? What did this particular person being in power mean for the economy? And all sorts of things. Um, random example, I went when I was... 17 I went to stay with a family in the States and we went to Chicago um, and I met them there and then uh, we traveled down to Alabama to visit some of their family which is just an amazing drive and um, just a fascinating cultural difference and I remember the first morning we went out into their town and they said let's go for breakfast you choose which is a stupid thing to say to someone who's never been to like I have no idea what's good or not so I was like okay um, how about this place here and we were walking down the street and I suddenly realized like no one was they'd stopped dead like at this shock that I had suggested this place that I had no idea and I was like oh what is it like is that really bad and they said that place is run by democrats <laughs> and I was like oh gosh like do they make bad waffles I don't know what I don't know what's going on but I had stumbled into something that was so politically divisive that I had no idea how that was linked to breakfast like I but for them, it was a big deal. And again, I'm not, I'm not mocking them. I'm just recognising that they, there's something going on in their worldview, which is not going on in my worldview, which is that politics affects breakfast. <laughs> like, and, and knowing that meant, I, I mean, I was 17. I didn't process it this well, I'm sure. But, but knowing that means that there are certain landmines that I don't want to step on, partly for myself, but partly because I don't want to disrespect people in their culture as well. So, yeah, whatever the equivalent of that is in the Bible. Um, yes, <laughs> and the prophet went to the cafe that was run by Republicans. I don't know. Um, yeah, so just knowing this sort of stuff is really important as we engage with the Bible. So let's think about this um, a little more seriously and apply it um, on the next page. We're going to think about the task of exegesis. I'm going to give you two big words. Well, the first one is not especially big, but it is, it's just a jargon word, I guess. Exegesis and hermeneutics. Um, I don't know if these are words that you are familiar with or not, but they're just worth knowing, um, at least. Exegesis is the task of drawing the meaning out of a text. So reading a text and finding what was or is the original meaning in this text. 
And the second bit is hermeneutics, which is how that then applies to our world today. And we'll come to that in a little bit. But the first thing that we need to do when we're reading a passage is we need to do the task of exegesis. We need to unpack that passage and work out what is the meaning in that passage and what was the meaning intended by the original author for the original hearers. And it's important to start there because if you rush to what does this mean for us, you, you trample all over a culture and you'll trample all over a whole load of meanings and and probably do a very bad job of actually thinking about what the text originally meant in a way that's dishonouring and means that what we apply to us may not appear at all what God meant. So a text cannot mean to us what it could never have meant to them. <laughs> it's just worth bearing in mind. Hermeneutics, applying it to us, always comes out of what exegesis tells us, like what the text originally meant. So we need to start there, otherwise we're being a bad traveller. And I think there are just two things, I mean there's loads we could say on this, but I don't want to make it too technical, but there are, I guess, two things to think about uh, when we're doing exegesis. There is content, uh, sorry, context, and there is content. So if you start with context, it's worth asking when you're reading a particular passage, what is the historical context of this text and what is the literary context of this text? So ask yourself a few basic questions. Um, and of course, I'm not saying with all of this, this is how you should do your quiet time. <laughs> uh, because actually, when we are reading the Bible for nourishment, spiritual nourishment, often we are wanting to say, well, how is God going to speak to us today? You won't do your quiet times in a rigid way like this. That's not what I'm suggesting at all. But it is worth asking some basic questions when we're reading a text. And those questions might be who, what, why, where and when. So who is the author? Who are the recipients? Actually, is it one recipient or is it multiple recipients? Um, what's the relationship between the two? Do they know each other? Have they met each other? Uh, did Paul plant this church? Has he only heard about this church? Um, do these people like each other? <laughs> like, these are worth asking. Um, what's their relationship? What is actually written? Like literally, what is there? And how is it structured? What's the tone of it? Um, how does that affect the way you read it? Why was it written? What's the purpose of it being written? And sometimes the te text will tell you why it's been written. Um, and sometimes you need to maybe look at a commentary or some notes in the Bible to get a hint of that. But the purpose for it can make a huge difference in understanding it. Where was it written? Where was it written from and where was it written to? Um, are the author and recipient in the same place? Are they separate? Um, has the author ever been to the place that he's writing to? Would he like to be there, but he's actually in jail at the time? <laughs> you know, obviously, this, this is the sort of thing that Paul talks about. Those affect the way that we think about um, the text. W what is going on in the particular place where it's being written to? Um, these kind of questions are worth thinking about. When was it written? Um, where, what might have been going on at the time? Was this early into the beginnings of the church? Was this quite late on? Had things developed? Were there historical factors that have meant that we need to read this in a particular light? And these kind of questions you may need help with, and that's totally fine. Like some of it is in the text, and you find it quite easily, and some of it just have a look at the intros to, um, to your books. Or actually, one of the best things you can do, uh, if you've never seen this, um, I would not be at all offended if you got up and walked out now and just went home and watched the Bible Project videos on, on YouTube. Like, if you don't listen to anything, but you just, you have my full permission to watch the Bible Project videos on YouTube while I'm talking, because they're probably better than anything I will say. They are absolutely brilliant. And the, um, I use them all the time. Uh, and they're, 
intros, they're just like five or seven minutes introductions to a particular book. They'll tell you all this sort of detail really succinctly, animated beautifully, really thoughtfully, help you to join the dots. And I, every time I start a new book of the Bible, I start there. And um, I remember actually the first time someone suggested to me, I rather snobbishly thought, cartoons. <laughs> How's that going to help? Man, I was wrong. Um, like they are brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Totally recommend them. Um, these sorts of things can be really helpful for us to understand the historical context and also the literary context, which is to say not only where or how was this thing written, but actually where does it sit within the Bible? Um, what type of genre are we dealing with? Is it narrative? Is it uh, a letter? Um, what's the surrounding context of a particular passage? So if I'm reading a, a chapter or half a chapter, what's the immediate context? So start with the bit that you're reading, what's just immediately around it? Are there other stories next to it? Are there other um, sayings? What's going on in the rest of the section around it? Uh, how does that fit within this bit of the book or with the book itself? Um, or if it's a book that's written uh, and the author has written other books, like how does that fit with what the author has written as a whole and the author's particular passage? And then how does that fit within the half of the Bible it finds itself in? How does that fit with the whole Bible. So starting small and then asking questions that sort of widen out is really important. And you'll find that there are all sorts of reasons why particular things are put next to each other. And we'll look at that in the content in a moment. But just asking what's the historical context and what's the literary context is really important. Uh, you, no need to turn there, but well, you can if you want. But the next page, I've just given you some things to bear in mind when approaching different genres. We won't go through these because basically this two-year course will go through these uh, and you'll look at some tools for how to unpack different um, sections of scripture, but each of them requires some different thought about historical context and literary context. But like I say, we won't focus on that now. So the first thing to do in exegesis is to ask questions about the context of the passage you're reading. The second thing is to ask about the content. Uh, and there are things to look for in sentences, in paragraphs and in discourses, so longer bits. So reading a sentence, um, or a couple of sentences, just ask, worth asking, what are the repeated words? Because repetition gives you idea of key themes. Um, and it might not be literally the same word repeated multiple times, but similar related words. Actually, one of my bugbears of the Psalms, um, in many English translations, I don't know whether it's fair to say the ESV is the worst, but I think it is a pretty bad offender on this, is that it will take the same Hebrew word and change it throughout the psalm, which is deeply annoying. And so sometimes you, you can lose the repetition that would have been really obvious if you were reading in Hebrew, which of course I don't do. Um, like you're saying the same word over and over, and I don't know whether the English translators want to draw out different nuances or they think, oh man, we might bore people if we use the same word three times. Maybe it's like a mixture of those, but actually repetition of groups of word can be important. Um, so, so you might not literally find the same word repeated, but take someone that we talked about earlier, who does not sit, stand, walk. Ah, oh, there's something that groups those together. There's something interesting here. And you find that that group of words happens early on in the psalm and later on in the psalm. And you're, ah, repetition tells you something about what is going on in the text. Look out for that kind of thing. Contrasts and comparisons. Uh, the rich and the poor, the wages of sin and the free gift of the gospel, the first Adam, the new Adam, the sheep and goats. Contrasts, what's being said in this contrast and comparison. Um, lists, it's worth looking at a list and saying, I wonder if it is ordered a particular way. And sometimes it's not, <laughs> uh, but sometimes there's a reason why a particular thing is at the front of the list because they want you to see that it's significant. 
But equally, the final thing of the list might be significant because they're building up to that. So it's just worth asking what's going on here. And sometimes I was reading a passage just yesterday and, and it listed a whole load of things in Ezekiel. It lists a whole load of things and then later on it has the same list but reversed. And that's really interesting. Ah, I wonder why. It's because here are all these problems and God has just reversed them one by one. And just knowing that kind of thing, it really helps you. Um, figures of speech, metaphors, um, cause and effect. So one thing might affect another. It's worth recognising that. Um, conjunctions, but, and, for, therefore. Pay attention to those. Uh, people often say, what is the therefore, therefore? It's a good question to ask. Um, when preachers start a sermon and they read their text of the day and it begins, therefore, <laughs> you, know, you really need to know what last week's sermon was about and the preacher should help you in that because there's a reason, there's a logical connection. You've got to follow through through that flow. Um, verbs tell you about the action. Uh, pronouns tell you who is speaking and to whom. Is it an individual? Is it to a group? Those sorts of things. Within paragraphs, it's worth looking at some, some things are just general ideas that are sort of hinted at here and then unpacked throughout. Um, sometimes there are questions and answers. And it's worth saying, whose question is this here? Because sometimes, or whose answer is it actually? Particularly when you read Paul, sometimes it sounds like, and you could quote a verse out of context, and it sounds like Paul is presenting a question or an answer as if he believes that question or answer. It might actually be the people he's writing to. It's their question he's responding to. And if you simply take that out and go, put it on a fridge magnet and live by that, like you might notice that in the next verse, Paul says, no, idiots, this is how it is. And you've taken it out of context. So ask questions about the questions and answers. Look at the dialogue. Um, who is speaking and to whom? And sometimes that's really obvious in the Gospels, but actually harder in the Psalms. Is this bit in the voice of God? Is this bit in the voice of the psalmist? Uh, is it an enemy who is speaking that then the psalmist comes back at and God corrects? Like it's worth asking these questions. Um, emotional terms, uh, are there strong words to create a reaction? What's the tone? Is it sarcastic? Is it angry? Is it joyful? Is it encouraging? Uh, whatever. And then within discourses, so longer sections, it's worth asking, why are there breaks here? Um, why does it suddenly just shift to something else? And is it as big as a shift as it feels like? Or are there connections? Are there reasons why this story is put next to this uh, passage? Are they meant to be grouped together because they're similar or because they're different? And how does that affect the way I interpret it? Um, Little example in John chapter 9, you've got the story of the healing of a blind man, and then immediately after, Jesus talks about spiritual blindness. <laughs> and he's talking to people who are objecting to the healing of this blind man, and you're like, okay, there's something going on here. They might not have happened at exactly the same time, but John wants to put them together in order to go, this illustrates that. And having them together can help you to, um, to draw out a theme of what Jesus was trying to say and do. And if that feels like hard work, well, it kind of is, but I'm not saying that you should have this list. Although, feel free, like, this may be helpful to go through some of these questions as you are literally reading the Bible next time. But it's about internalising this process of recognising this is not my text in my world. If I'm to be a good traveller, I need to try and enter into their world, uh, the world in which this was written and uh, the people it was written to. And so I need to actually kind of internalise this question uh, these sets of questions, these sets of tools, so that over time they become second nature to me. The first thing I'm doing is I'm trying to get what the text means and the goal of it to help you sort of reach a conclusion, at least for me, is to answer the question, what did this text mean and can I summarise the passage in a sentence? And I aim to have it in the past tense. So what I might want to do if I'm reading a passage is try and summarising it 
uh, Paul said to these people, do this. It's past tense. Because I'm not at this point going, and Paul says to me, do this. That's a next step. Uh, what I want to do is the good work of, her, of, of exegesis of saying, okay, what did the text mean? Knowing that once I've got that, then I can start to think what it might mean to me. Does that make sense as a process? Oh, sorry, did I? Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, don't worry about too, too much about that. But basically, it's a structural thing. So um, you read some commentaries on the Bible and they see these things, these chiasms everywhere. And um, it is a Hebrew structure of writing where basically you might start with, oh, you know, like I said, in, in Ezekiel, I was reading this passage the other day and it starts with, um, it's talking about the wickedness of what the leaders had done to the people. And it starts with, they've done this and they've done this and they've done this and they've done this, like four things or how many it was. And then what God is going to do is reverse that. And so he takes the fourth thing and that becomes the, the next thing. And then the third thing becomes, and then, so it basically like goes into a point. So the points here go in and then back out again. Um, so in the notes there, I put A, B, C, D, C, B, a, what I've basically said is that D is like a hinge point and the points go in like that and then reverse as they come back out. You find it all the times in the Psalms um, and sometimes it's significant and sometimes it isn't <laughs> and sometimes it's just a poetic thing and commentators can write pages on, oh, this means this, this and this. Sometimes it really doesn't. <laughs> it was just a poetic way of putting it. Um, but just recognising structural things is, is interesting, I think. Yeah, particularly when you're dealing with the poetry. Yeah. Um, It is, yes, 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 definitely. I'm not playing you at Scrabble now, so okay. Um, great. <laughs> Brilliant, okay, any questions on any of that or are, we, are you with me? No. <laughs> of anyone in the room, not you, Tom. <laughs> yes, and someone else can answer it. No, I'm kidding. It's just a thought of how the writers of the New Testament, when they refer to the Old Testament, Mm. If they often do stuff that if anyone else did it, I would feel quite uncomfortable with. <laughs> uh, for instance, um, Paul's talking about the rock in the wilderness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He says that rock is Christ. And, mm. uh, if someone else said that, are you sure you're doing your exegesis? Yes. <laughs> what do you think about that? Are, are they allowed to do it because they're New Testament authors? <laughs> or, or is there more going on there? Than, than yeah, that? oh, great question, great question. And that is one that I... I'm kind of trying to wrestle with a bit myself at the moment. So I'm, uh, I've just, yeah, I've just started a writing project trying to make, trying to work out how to make connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament in a responsible way. Um, and obviously the New Testament authors do that and I believe they do it better than I ever will. So I'm not going to be like, no, Paul, you got it wrong. <laughs> um, but actually sometimes it is like you read bits and um, you think, how do how do you get that? And is, is that actually a responsible way of doing it? Like, it does feel like that at times. And you get that with the Gospels. Matthew's like, ah, oh, this fulfilled that. How? Like, that's really difficult. Um, and I think I'd say a few things. These are sort of ill-formed thoughts rather than well-formed thoughts because I'm still trying to process it through. Um, but I think when I come across things like that, I have to recognise there are probably ways of reading texts that are that makes sense to me as a modern Westerner that are different from how other people would have read texts. And Paul, as someone who meditated on scripture, 
in community, um, understanding the original languages as a rabbi would have been far closer to the correct way of interpreting scripture than, than I am today. So I have to recognize that I am probably not in the best place. I have to work harder than maybe Paul did because it was more intuitive to him. So there are things that make me go, seriously? Like, really? And maybe we'll give you some examples of that but um, in the next bit. But I have to recognize that probably there is a di there's something different going on. I need to learn to read scripture as they did. But what's difficult is that they don't often tell us how they did it. And so in the hands of people who just want to twist scripture however they want, it can be really easy. And I'm kind of nervous about people just going, ah, Jesus is this. <laughs> um, and I'm just basically doing what Paul did. Jesus is the, I don't know, whatever, just random item in any story. And just reading Jesus into things where Jesus is like, oh, it's not me. <laughs> like, like it can be really easy to do that. And so I feel like we do need to, we need to recognize that their reading of scripture is probably more fluid and creative than we typically tend to be with a modern Western, very literal sort of mindset. Uh, but there do need to be some guardrails and it's hard to know what those guardrails are. Um, so I'm, I'm actually just reading a book at the moment on, um, on typology and uh, uh, um, illusions, uh, allusions, sorry. And um, I, I don't know whether I recommend it yet or not <laughs> uh, because I'm only like half of the way through. But I, I'm recognising that actually I can be too formulaic in the way I approach things and I need to sort of break some of that down. That was a really waffly way of saying that's a good point that I don't know. <laughs> um, but I think it is, it is a challenge. You've got two degrees more separation from Paul there. Mm, so mm. Paul was within the same culture, within the same location, within the same customs. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so there was an instinctive understanding of, uh, of that, whereas we're now physically removed, yes. both temporally and yes. geographically. Yes. So, so we've... we've we're a double traveller mm. to try and mm. understand mm. the nuances of the concept. Mm. So I don't think you should beat yourself up too much about Thank it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right, yes. Um, yes, definitely. And the third aspect is that he was inspired by the Spirit of God to write these things down. <laughs> and, uh, and I have the Spirit of God as well, leading me into truth, but uh, there is something different going on there. Um, but I think maybe the journey that I've been on, maybe this is more helpful, is that I have been very negative about I started out very negative about those sorts of things um, uh, and I am less negative now. Um, not about Paul, sorry, but, but about like reading passages and going, oh, Christ is under this, <laughs> this stone or like Christ is... Like I've, I've been quite negative about that and I definitely was at a place where I thought, basically I don't think we are allowed to do that um, except in the areas where the New Testament authors do that. And so I will be really confident, like, well, Paul said that Jesus was that rock, and he said that in 1 Corinthians 10, so, okay, that was it. But I'm not allowed to do that with other places. And I think I'm now getting to a place where I think, no, actually, I think Paul was not only telling us, like, it didn't exhaust it. I think there is more to unpack in creative ways. I just am not quite sure that I'm clear how to do that responsibly. And I think I have level, I haven't articulated this before, so this is helpful for me, if not for anyone else, but I have levels of certainty, I guess. Um, so I am certain about, and I'm happy to say with clarity, um, Christ was the rock. Like that's how Paul interprets it in 1 Corinthians 10. Uh, Christ was the rock that was struck and the water came forth. And, and I know that I, I'm okay with that because Paul said that. And then I have other things where I think, oh, I've got enough data in the Old Testament and the New Testament to know that certain symbols meant something. 
And so I can read into something and make connections that the authors didn't explicitly make, but they've given me enough hints at. And then there's some stuff that I think, oh, there's a connection there. I was reading something yesterday um, and thinking, oh, there's a connection there, but I can't see that anywhere else. <laughs> like no one else is making that point, so I'll hold that lightly. I think there's something there, but I can't be sure, so I'm not going to be dogmatic about it. And I'm dogmatic about the things that the New Testament writers are. Um, I'm relatively confident about the things where there's a lot of data, and then I'm less confident about things where I'm like, oh, has anyone else seen this? And if they haven't, it's probably a good reason. Or they probably have seen it and thought, no, that's wrong, so I'm not going to write about it. Like this. So I, I guess, yeah, does that sort of help a little? I have a sort of related question, which hmm. is... Yes. So actually, maybe a better way of putting it would have been that a text can't mean something to us that it couldn't have mean, meant to them. Um, I think maybe it's better because um, the application will often look different to us, to them. Um, but uh, uh, an application to me can't be counter to what it would have meant to them. So. Um, Let's come back to that. I'm trying to think if there's a quick way to answer that, but I think maybe the next section will answer that a bit better. But yeah. Yeah, interesting question. So, um, and this is a question we talked about a little bit, uh, what, what do you do with the books that aren't in our Bible? Um, and uh, let's, yeah, let's, let's take a moment to answer that, actually, and then we'll, I'm just trying to think about how I get through time. So, let, yeah, let's answer that, and then we'll go on to the next thing, which hopefully might answer Tom's question and your question a bit better, and if it doesn't, then I'll call a break and hope you forget. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, uh, so let's, let's take that. So um, two bits of a question. So we had a conversation over here about um, other books that aren't in the Bible or aren't in our versions of the Bible, like should they be there? Um, and that's one question. But then actually, uh, when the New Testament writers seem to quote these books, like what should we make of them? Um, and, and there, just to give you two examples, there are some things where... Um, the book of Enoch is arguably quoted, which is not in our texts. Um, but then also Paul quotes pagan poets in Acts 17 as well. So what's, what's going on in all these sorts of things? Let me try and hold those three questions in mind. So, so there are books that are not in, I mean, there's tons of books that are not in our Old Testament or New Testament, um, but which some people argue should be. Um, and it's worth just recognising there are two separate groups here, at least. Um, there is what is often known as the Apocrypha, which are books that do not exist in, the, in our Old Testament, but they fit in that sort of time. Uh, and some people say should be in the Old Testament. And they're different from a group of texts which, um, which people argue should be in our New Testament. The Gnostic Gospels, for example, the Gospel of Thomas and Mary Magdalene and the infancy of Jesus and a whole load of things. And they are two different things, um, but the questions around them are similar. Like, should they be in there and why not? And how did they not get in there? Um, and often the impression that people have through 
bad scholarship or um, novels like they do in G-Code or whatever, is, um, uh, is that essentially at various points, Jews or Christians sat down with a whole load of different texts and said, which ones do we like and which one do we don't? <laughs> and we'll keep those ones and get rid of those ones. And that's almost definitely not how it happened <laughs> at any point in the Old Testament or the New Testament. So like I said, the Old Testament was formed over a period of time where things were said in conversation and written down probably on stones originally and then collections of stones and they were put together and they were compiled together into a meaningful book and books were put alongside each other and then those books were shaped and put in different orders and connection points were made between them so it was being formed over a period of time and through that period of time people were trying to make sense of their own story inspired by the spirit of God and there came a point probably just after the exile when they had returned back where prophets and sages sort of finalized this form of the Tanakh in the form that we have it today and that Jesus knew uh, and then at some point it got translated into Greek as well and so sometimes you see uh, mentioned the Septuagint which is the Greek translation of the, the Hebrew Old Testament. It was a formative process um, but probably by well, definitely by the time of Jesus, there was a formalised idea that this was the inspired text. And there were other texts, of course, that existed around the time that the Bible even mentions. Like I said earlier, you read through Chronicles. If you want more details about this, check out the scroll of that. And no one is saying that scroll should be in this book. Otherwise, the book would be enormous. Like there was a recognition there's something spirit inspired about these. And these books may be helpful for history, but they're not the same thing. And the Apocrypha is largely text that came from the end of Malachi onwards and tried to explore the history and development of theology in the Jewish faith during the period where God was no longer speaking. So we know that there was this 400 years of silence. And even in, I forget if it's one or two Maccabees, one of those books, it says, and during this period, God had ceased to speak. So they're not claiming to be spirit-inspired words of God, but they're useful historical texts. And they tell us what happened, but also how people grappled with the suffering they were going through. And there are all sorts of things you can learn from that about... Um, the development of theology under the pressure of persecution and how you got different sects of the Samaritans and the, the Pharisees and how they went their particular ways and all that kind of stuff. Really interesting, not the Bible um, and not spirit-inspired. It doesn't claim to be. Useful to read if you're a geek <laughs> and if you want to know that sort of stuff, but it's not the same. Then I'll just say about the New Testament, I'll come back to you on that. So with the New Testament, the letters, the, the things that aren't in the New Testament are slightly different. Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Mary Magdalene, all those sorts of things were written a long time after, perhaps 200 years after. So no one thought that those texts were actually written by Thomas or Mary Magdalene or whoever. What happened was essentially an offshoot of Christianity started worshipping in a particular way, becoming in a sense a, a sect, and wanted to justify themselves against the recognised canon of scripture. And so went back and wrote as if they were those people, knowing that no one was thinking they were actually going to fall for it and think, oh, this was genuinely Thomas. They're writing back and saying, well, this is how Thomas's perspective would have left us, led us to today. And those texts were just, I mean, many of them are incoherent, utterly incompatible with Christianity. And it's not the case that people sat down and went, which ones do we like, which ones do we not? The church understood which were their formative documents. And so when the councils happened, basically they were saying, well, those ones are in, and those ones have never been considered genuine authoritative scripture so we rubber stamp what the church already says which is this is our scripture that's a long way around of saying there were loads of texts floating around in the ancient world and some of them are helpful but don't carry the weight of scripture so when people like 
James or Jude or, or Paul quote these other texts, it's worth saying, well, are they quoting them as authoritative scripture or are they quoting them as interesting cultural insights into the way that people think that may be true, uh, they may actually be true, but were for not ever, whatever reason not in the Bible. So I tried to answer lots of questions there and that may not have answered yours. But, um, well, yeah, you are. I, I kind of disagree in, in a sense that I'm from an Orthodox church. Sure. So we hold to a wider kind of scripture. Yeah. So, and so to, just to track back what yeah. you said, we believe that that is inclusive. So it's kind of like it's a Protestant kind of yeah. Catholic and, and Orthodox. Yeah. So what would you include that isn't included on our list? Um, the dragon, okay, yeah. Uh, one two Maccabees, yep. um, that kind of yeah. thing. It's, it's kind of things that we, in our church tradition, yeah. we say that we, we, we were the first church. Sure. Um, and we hold to the council. Yeah. And, and through those uh, uh, council, yeah. we decided what was in and out. Sure. So the Gnostic Gospels and things like that, just Yeah, sure. The Orthodox and the Protestant, yeah. the, the New Testament's the same. Sure, yeah. The, the Old Testament. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Great. So, um, for those of you who haven't read Bell and the Dragon and 1 and 2 Maccabees, so they would fall in what I've called the Apocrypha there. Um, and the Catholic Church would also include those in, uh, in, in their Bibles, and the Protestant tradition doesn't. Um, actually, I've not talked to people from the Orthodox Church about this, so I'd be really interested to know. Within the Catholic Church, at least many people would consider it a secondary form of scripture. Um, so I don't know if that's the same for, for you. So often Roman Catholics would call it deuterocanonical, and it's like a second level. So they would recognise it's useful and helpful, uh, and probably God-inspired in some sense, but in a different, with a different weight to the rest. Is that how you would see it, or would you see it all the same? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Interesting. I've got a ton of questions, but this will become a conversation between us rather than anyone else. But um, great. That's really fascinating. Um, and I love the fact, just to say, I love the fact that we come from different traditions and we're able to talk about this stuff. And um, uh, and I, I I've and Bell, Bell and the Dragon is fascinating and interesting comparing that to Daniel actually so there's, there's really interesting stuff in there and one or two Maccabees and I find these books really helpful so I'm not saying we should never read them <laughs> like that's totally not what I'm saying at all so I hope you don't feel like I'm disrespecting your scripture um I'd say from a Protestant tradition and, and actually to be fair a lot of churches that I've grown in have been very negative about those books and I'm not there because I think there's so much that I've learned particularly about the development of theology that only makes sense by reading those so often I teach a day on the resurrection and one of my points reading teaching people is by saying we look at the old testament view of the afterlife and they suddenly get to jesus and it's like the, you can't understand how the world had become so different at the time of jesus to the old testament without knowing how did development happen through one or two maccabees and there's so much stuff in those texts about resurrection that is way stronger than anything in the protestant old testament and it's really helpful to have those texts to help you to understand it so i actually often teach a bit on resurrection in, in maccabees because i think it's helpful i don't personally treat it with the same spiritual weight as the rest but um yeah yeah interesting okay maybe i'll have some questions for you at break <laughs> um thank you thank you for asking that and i recognize you're probably in the minority in this room so I... yeah, 
I appreciate you asking that question and feeling okay to answer that. I hope that was a respectful answer to you, even if we disagree. So, yeah. Um, great. Okay, let's... Um, I'm conscious of time. And the danger is we spend all the time on... What, what did the Bible mean? And I never get to, but how does it make sense to me? And you go away thinking, I can never have a quiet time again, which would be awful. So, um, <laughs> so let's um, look at the uh, page nine and then 10, and then we'll take a break and then we'll come back and bridge the gap. So let me just grab some water. Okay, when we come to reading scripture, we often turn to a single passage. Maybe the passage that's been assigned to us for the day, reading through a particular plan or whatever it happens to be. Um, And we need to do the hard work of asking, what does this passage mean in its immediate context? But like I said, scripture is a story. And so the most responsible way to deal with it is actually to ask not only what are the technicalities of this passage, where it sits, but how does it fit within the huge story of God? Um, And in order to do that, we need to ask ourselves... Um, How does this fit within the narrative? And then it becomes clear that actually there are many narratives going on in the story of the Bible. Here are three, um, and they're maybe not the only three, but I think they are three worth thinking about. Um, The top is what we call the meta-narrative, so the grand narrative of the story of God through all of Scripture. Uh, And if you were to try and summarise the story of the Bible, it's quite common for people to summarise it in these four categories, creation, fall, redemption and restoration. People might use slightly different terms, but essentially God created everything, whatever that looks like. And I think you'll do Genesis next month, so I won't deal with that now. Uh, And then everything went very badly wrong, the fall. And essentially the fall covers most of scripture because we're living under the context of the fall. And then Someone came, spoiler alert, Jesus, he came to, to redeem uh, what had been lost. And so we look at the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the significance of that. And now redemption has come. We're in a different phase of the story, but the story doesn't end there. There is a promise of restoration, which is that Jesus will return and make all things new. And so the story will reach its conclusion. So even though this book has reached its conclusion, there is still more to come because this book talks about a future redemption. And that, I guess, is a fourfold way of looking at the story of God and how it develops through scripture uh, and how actually scripture points beyond itself to how it will conclude. But then within that, there's sort of a second level of narrative that you may want to think about, which is the narrative of election. People talk about this idea of God having chosen a people for his name, which is a key thing that I'll be back in two months and we'll talk about Exodus. And the key thing that we'll talk about there is God choosing a particular people um, and rescuing them and forming them as a nation. God has always wanted a people, but the way in which they are called and redeemed is quite different. So creation, they are called by, I mean, literally come out of the ground. Like That's how they're called. And so it's different there to when God then calls Abraham and a family to come out of him. And then when he calls the nation uh, in Exodus and he gives them particular laws to live by. And then he takes them into the promised land and they're in a different sort of phase because they're no longer just nomads they're fixed but then that all changes and so the story of how God called his people is different and so when you're reading a text it's worth asking what phase of the election story am I in because how is God interacting with his people who are his people how do we know who's in and who's out and what does it look like to be in or out but then the third level of narrative is what we might call micro narratives which is the small stories that make up the bigger stories so take Abraham for example 
the Abraham story is not just one like quick short story. It's made up of a bunch of stories, like his call, his time in Egypt, Lot, the giving of the covenant, etc., etc. So within the narrative, the compound narrative of Abraham, you have micro narratives that make up the narrative of Abraham. So say I'm reading one of those little stories about Abraham, what I need to do, and again, like I'm saying this more technically than any of us will ever do in our quiet times, but I need to say, well, how does this story uh, of, say, Abraham and Lot fit within the compound narrative of Abraham? How does that, where does that fit within the election story? Where are we in the story? Oh, we're in the Abraham and covenant section of the story. Where does that fit within the creation, fall, redemption, restoration story? And so you take every story that you're reading and you read it almost up through the layers to understand how does it connect into the broad story of God. And I think we need to do that, at least intuitively, if we're to understand, like, where does this fit and how am I meant to interact with this text? Here's a question. When Jesus said that the scriptures testify to him, what level of those narratives do you think we're talking about? Meta-narrative, election, or micro-narrative? When Jesus said that the, all the scriptures testify to him, did he mean at the meta-narrative le- level or that every little story points to him? What do you think? Uh, one, two, or three. Hands up for one. Okay. Hands up for two. Okay. Hands up for three. No one for three, but a lot of people with no hands. <laughs> you think I'm trying to trick you? <laughs> How about all three? Yeah, interesting. So this kind of goes back to Tom's question, really, um, of where do you find Jesus in the stories? I think I would broadly say that when Jesus is talking about scriptures pointed to him, he means it at the top level. He means the creation for redemption, restoration story is all pointed to him that the story of longing for someone who will come and put the world to rights all points to him. I don't think Jesus is saying that he is in every sentence in the sense that you're meant to look and you go, oh, that pot of stew must be Christ somehow, or that bridge must be Christ somehow, although there are moments where the rock is Christ and the pillar of fire. Um, Jude says, it was Jesus led the people out of Egypt. What? <laughs> like, I, how am I meant to get to that? Like, there are moments where he absolutely is in the micro, but I think generally he is saying that he is the, the goal of the whole narrative. And so some people talk, and this is a bit geeky, but some people talk about Christocentric versus Christotelic readings. And essentially the idea is that if you, if you see all of scripture about being about Christ in a Christocentric way, then you're looking often, this is an over-characterization, but you're looking almost for every detail. Like how does every detail point to Christ in this particular passage? Whereas to think Christotelically, uh, telos is a word that means a goal, a purpose. And to think that way is to say, I'm not expecting to find Christ in every detail, but how is he the goal of every story? Or how does this point to the grand purpose, which is summed up in Jesus? And the way, the, the way that affects us is that when I'm reading a passage of scripture, I'm not therefore constantly thinking, how is Jesus hidden in this in some Bible codish way? But rather I'm saying, what is this exposing about the purposes of God or the longings of humanity, which will ultimately find its fulfillment in Jesus? So a little example. Um, uh, if you read the Chronicles of Narnia, who, who are they about? Like, who's the main character? If you had to pick one. Aslan. Aslan, yeah. Aslan is not on every page of those books. 
In fact, he's not on very many pages of those books. And yet he somehow is there in the background, whether people are knowing about him or thinking about him or longing for him. He's somehow there despite not being on every page. And that's how I sort of think about the scriptures. It's all about Christ, but I don't have to live with the pressure of finding him in every passage in order to... And in fact, if I do live with that pressure, I may well do bad exegesis because I'm forcing it to fit a mould that it's not intended to force. Does that make sense? So let me give you an illustration for this, which may be helpful. Um, and we'll kind of land it here and then we'll have a quick break and then we'll come back and, and try and work this out. Um, so next page, page 10. Actually, I, I got this illustration, I've adapted it slightly, but um, from Tim Mackey, who is the uh, guy behind the Bible Project. If you're allowed to have a theological crush, he's, he's mine. Um, don't tell him that. <laughs> Actually, if you're in a position to tell him that, it probably means you know him, so introduce us, please. <laughs> um, but yeah, he's great. Um, th- this is a great illustration. If you look on the left, there's a picture of Louis Armstrong. That's clearly Louis Armstrong, right? If you know what Louis Armstrong like, looks like, that's, that's him. But it's actually a photo mosaic made by a guy called Robert Silvers, and he's done loads of these, and they're absolutely brilliant. You should take them out. And if you look on the right-hand side, this is zoomed in to a bit of Louis's face, and you find that this big picture of Louis Armstrong is actually made out of hundreds and hundreds of little pictures of Louis Armstrong. So the picture on the left is undeniably Louis Armstrong, but it's actually lots of Louis Armstrongs um, arranged in a particular way in order to create this overall portrait. And what's interesting is that the artist has selected and grouped these images in order to make the overall portrait, and every little picture adds to the whole, but they're deliberately arranged and grouped in order that when you step back, you see a massive Louis, (laughs) despite having seen thousands of Louis, and your brain probably hasn't actually registered it. What's really interesting is if you look at the ones on the right, you've got like old Louis next to young Louis and some people who aren't even Louis but who've worked with him um, and some points he's like right at the front and he's the main focus. Sometimes he's at the back, sometimes he's barely in there at all but it's someone who is close to him and added to his sound. It's not chronologically ordered. Actually, it couldn't be chronologically ordered, because if you ordered it chronologically, the colours wouldn't match up and you wouldn't get the final shape. So what the artist has done is taken things that are genuinely about him and rearranged them so that the colours collectively create this big thing that when you step back, having seen thousands of Louis but not really taken them in, you see like a massive Louis and all the little things add into the whole. And I think reading scripture can be like that. If you just are up close... You can see thousands of Louis, but you won't appreciate the artistry of what the artist has actually done. When you step back, your mind fills in the gaps and each of the little images contributes to the big one. But equally, if all you do is you stand at a distance and you see this in a gallery, you go, wow, great picture of Louis Armstrong. It's not until you get up close, you go, oh, actually, wow, that's thousands of pictures of Louis Armstrong. That's incredible. So when you get close, you realise, oh, the artist has done something amazing that I appreciated at one level and now I appreciate it at a greater level. And I think reading scripture can be like that. It's like a constant, <laughs> like that. Sometimes we're really in close going, what does this text mean? Like, what, this is really hard and I've got to work this out today with a commentary on my quiet time or whatever. And then it's when you step back, you realise, oh, that was grouped with that. But that seems to come from even a different time. And why is that there? That seems like an odd choice. Oh, it was there because it adds some colour together that makes sense that when I step back, ah, it's Jesus. 
So the Bible isn't about Louis Armstrong, it's about Jesus. <laughs> and, like, and sometimes, actually, he's not the one in the picture. It may be someone else. It might be David. It may be Abraham. It may be Moses. And you think, why is he there? Well, it's because, actually, there's something of Christ that when you step back, you're like, oh, all the Davids collected together make Jesus' cheek. Or <laughs> however the metaphor, maybe it breaks down at some point. But like, reading scripture is like going in close and it's like coming back. And I think we need to do both. We need to go for the hard work of getting in and saying, like, this is a really difficult text. What does this mean? I recognise that I'm out of my depth here. This is not my language, not my culture, not my expectations. But I'm going to deal with it on its own terms. But then if we only stop there, we get into the nitty gritty, we never really appreciate the fact that this whole thing is pointing to Jesus. And so reading scripture, for me, I just find that really helpful. It's about getting in close and it's about stepping back. And it's about having a dynamic, lifelong process of doing that so that we can understand how all the little longings and the little hints all get added into the job description, which feels overwhelming. And you step back and you go, oh, wow, there is someone who is able to fulfill this. And it's Christ. Does that make sense as an illustration? Great. Well, what I'd love us to do then is, um, time has sort of raced away. I hope this has been helpful. We've taken, this is quite different to how I teach it usually. So uh, maybe go and listen to the podcast and for a previous year and find out how I've done it better. But I think this is actually helpful just to talk through some of this stuff. Um, but what I'd love to do next is think about how it applies to us. And we'll try and do that a little bit quicker because I want to get into some exercises. Um, but why don't we take, can we do 10 minutes? Would that be sufficient? People be all right with that? Um, let's come back at 25 to caffeinated, pastried, whatever else you want to do. And we'll try and get into how this story interacts with our story. Okay, I hope this is um, making sense, and I hope, I mean, some, someone said, I can't remember who it was, someone I talked to, um, said, uh, we haven't yet reached Genesis, there's already a lot to take in, <laughs> and that, that is true, um, and uh, I hope that what this will do will just give you some insights that mean that when you do come to Genesis, um, there'll be bits you'll be like, that's what Liam was talking about. <laughs> if only he'd said it better. <laughs> like, there, there'll be things that as we go through, hopefully today we'll give you tools and just paradigms or, or ways of reading the scriptures that will make sense as you actually get into it. Um, and if not, I'll be back in two months and I can answer all <laughs> your problems then uh, when we look at Exodus. Um, and equally, if you've hated today, you might want to skip two months' time because I'll be back. <laughs> but um, uh, no, it's, I, I hope that today will actually make sense as we get into the texts um, over this course. <clears throat> so <laughs> in the first session, I say, uh, that was all meant to be one session that we do in like an hour and a bit. But um, <clears throat> in that first chunk we've really looked at the idea of scripture being God's story um, and the goal of exegesis is understanding what God's word was to its original hearers and so we go through all that process of thinking about its uh, literary context historical context and the, the hard work of working out what the sentences paragraphs and sort of sections mean um, and so the first task is working out what it meant, but scripture has not yet reached its fulfillment until we then go, well, what does it mean for me? Because Jesus said that we have to not only hear his words, but actually do them as well. And so that requires us to make a second step, which is the step of hermeneutics, which is essentially to say, how does God's story shape our story? Because I don't know if you've noticed, but none of us feature in this book. <laughs> uh, and yet we're still part of the same story. Um, I, I love the fact that Paul writing to a Gentile church, I think it's in, it's, it's, 
Corinthians, 2 Corinthians maybe, he, he refers to, maybe it's 1 Corinthians, Paul writes to the Corinthians <laughs> in one of his letters, and he's, he's this predominantly Gentile church, and he talks about the events that happened in the Old Testament to the Jewish people as our story, <laughs> which is amazing. Like, as a Jew, writing to Gentiles, he says, we share this story, despite the fact they weren't of the same lineage at all. And, and so we have the privilege of being somehow grafted into God's story, and therefore we've got to ask, well, how does God's story shape our story? So as a way into thinking about this, here's a question. Um, how many people have heard the phrase, the authority of scripture? Okay. How many people have ever stopped to think, what do we mean by that phrase, the authority of scripture? <laughs> what do we mean by that? Jesus didn't say, all authority in heaven and earth has been leather bound and is available from all good bookshops. <laughs> he didn't say, all authority in heaven and earth is easily searchable through a little app on your phone. <laughs> like he said, all authority in heaven and earth is where? Given to him. If all authority is given to him, not 80% of authority, but all authority, how much book does this, how much authority does this book have? If all is given to him? A lot. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad the answer was that rather than none at all, <laughs> okay? Because that's sort of where it sounds like. If he has all authority, how can this have any authority unless it is somehow his word mediated to us? Where people often talk about the authority, and this may sound like nitpicking, but I think it is important. When people talk about the authority of scripture, we, all, we often give the impression we think that this, this book is the thing that has all authority. This book only has authority if it is true that it is the means by which Jesus' authority is mediated to us. So a metaphor that might help. Um, I know very little about, well, a whole load of things, <laughs> but like, say, um, physics or like something that is just out of my realm of expertise. I might think, how, how can I know anything about this? Well, what I might do is I might get a book on the subject. And what I'm doing at that point is I am accessing the authority of someone else. Someone else has done the study, done the work, and then written this book so that this book is now not the authority on that. It's the means by which I access the authority that someone else has. And that, I think, is what is going on with the Bible. When we're reading the Bible, um, we are engaging with the authority of Jesus himself mediated through this book. So this book needs to shape the way that we live because it is spoken out by God. And when Paul talks about this in his letter to Timothy, he says that all scripture is um, theopneustos, is the, the, the Greek word theos, theos is God, pneuma to do with the spirit, and the word spirit and breath and wind are the same, both in Hebrew and in Greek. So it's the the God-spirited, inspired, it's sometimes translated, it's the God-breathed scriptures. These have authority because it, they are filled with and inspired with the breath of God. And it's through this we access the authority of God to shape our lives. But that's not that easy to know how to do because this book doesn't give us, like, well, some of them do. They have indexes of like, if you're struggling with this, go to this passage. But it kind of doesn't work like that. And we can make it work like that. But when we're making it work like that, I think we're making it work in a way that it wasn't intended to work. It's more of a story. And we've somehow got to ask, well, how does this story shape our understanding of our story? So um, page 12. 
Here's a way of thinking about it. And having said earlier that ideas like scripture is a love letter or a law book or whatever don't quite work, here's a metaphor that I think works better. And it's not perfect, but it works better. Um, and various theologians have talked about this. Tom Wright, Kevin Van Hooser, um, various different people. It's not my idea at all. Um, but I find it helpful to think of scripture as, the f- as a four-act play, or rather the first four acts of a five-act play. So this is slightly different to the structure I gave you earlier. But if you think of scripture as being four acts of one, creation, two, four, three, the story of Israel, four, the story of Jesus, then that gets you right through basically the whole Bible. But it doesn't get you to us. We are the fifth act of that play. But our story isn't here in this book. So here's here's the metaphor. It's like finding an ancient script where four chapters have been written and the author has died or stopped writing or whatever. I mean, like I say, (laughs) the metaphor breaks down uh, before the fifth one is done. And so what might you do? Say it was an old Shakespearean script. You might get a whole load of people who know Shakespeare, who are immersed in his work, who have done so many Shakespearean plays and really studied it and worked through it over years that they feel like they know how Shakespeare would have written the fifth act. They're so immersed in his work that when it comes to them creating or improvising the fifth act, they're probably going to do a good job. Better than any job of anyone who's never read Shakespeare but watched a Baz Luhrmann film. Like, like someone who's so immersed in the work and world of Shakespeare may be able to improvise the kind of fifth act that Shakespeare himself would write. And that, I think, is how we're meant to approach scripture. We are meant to immerse ourselves so much in Acts 1 to 4, learning the story, the principal characters, the style, the tone, the language, the trajectory of the plot lines, learning lessons from what has gone before. And on the basis of all that and what we know about the author of Acts 1 to 4, that should empower us, not as individuals, but as a community, to improvise the kind of Act 5 that God himself would write. Do you you see that? Does that metaphor make sense to you? So by immersing ourselves into the book, we get a sense of what matters to God. Things like worship and justice and care for those in need and uh, uh, genuine love and character and relationship. We get a sense of what he is like as the author. He is majestic. He is powerful. He is perfect. He is wise. He is loving. He is good in all that he does. And knowing those things and knowing how God has set up the story and how he has interacted in the past, that empowers us to improvise the best possible act five. But actually, if you've ever read a theatre script, you know that some of it is story, most of it is story, a lot of it is dialogue, but there are also some pretty explicit instructions as well. Um, There are some moments where it doesn't just give you a line but it says deliver this line this particular way or walk to stage left um, or pick up this thing and you've got particular instructions and if you don't do those things those things it explicitly tells you to do the story won't work out if you don't move to this side of the stage and pick up the gun you're not then going to be able to shoot that not that this is not the bible <laughs> <Doing clear. laughs> you read that story <laughs> um, like if you don't pick up i should have just picked any other item other than the gun really it would have been fine a sandwich or i don't know like if you don't do the things that it explicitly tells you to do then the story won't work a script is a mixture of art and narrative but also explicit instructions and i think the same is true of the bible there are stuff here that is narrative that we're meant to draw conclusions from and and 
try and wrestle with and think, well, how would I improvise that? But there are also some very explicit instructions that we have to obey as well. And it's a mixture between the two, a combination of narrative and instruction that empowers us to live the most consistent lives possible in acting Act 5 until the curtain comes down and Jesus takes his curtain call and remakes this world. Um, you can push the metaphor too far. but <laughs> I, I find that quite helpful. It stops me approaching this just as a rule book, but it stops me also just in approaching it as something that's kind of an interesting story of a past era and has very little relevance to me today. I read this story, I immerse myself in the story, I know about God, I know about how other people have experienced this story, and then I say, how does this story become mine, and what would the story look like if God wrote the story of my life, and that's how I want to live. Maybe easier said than done, but that's the task of hermeneutics. It's moving from what do I understand about what this text meant to how do I improvise it today. So, here are a couple of questions. Um, and I want a show of hands here, uh, and I want every hand up at every question, okay? No bowing out. If you don't have hands, that's totally fine, um, but I think, I think we all do. So, a hand for every question. Do you practice the following at your church? Do you teach that murder is wrong? Yes. Few hands not raised. Okay, interesting. Does, any, does anyone's churches not teach that murder is wrong? Well, that's really interesting. I'd probably put my hand up because I don't think that we have ever taught at my church, probably because we don't assume we don't need to. Like, I've never addressed my congregation and said, guys, this might shock you today. But, but you know, if you were asked, is murder is wrong? I think we would all say, all our churches would say, yes, murder is wrong. Phew. <laughs> I'm getting out of here alive, I hope. Um, at your church, do you, hands up if the answer is yes, do you offer animal sacrifices? <laughs> oh, gross. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Okay, here's another question. Do you at your church have hog roasts or do you consider pork uh, inedible? Like you shouldn't eat it. Like who, who would not allow the eating of pork in your church? Yeah, interesting. Great. Yeah. So the point with this is not, incidentally, to say some people get it right and some people get it wrong. Just to tease out something here, okay? We may differ on some of them uh, in a minute, actually. Do you, in your church, practice circumcision? Hands up if the answer is yes. Okay. Do you, in your church, forbid women to have elaborate hairstyles or wear jewellery and fine clothes? Yeah, okay, one hand. Yeah, okay. Any, anyone else? I mean, maybe not forbid, but teach? on it and have some kind of guidance or an no ish yeah modesty okay so there's something going on there which is an application of a principle which is not as hard as forbidding but yeah okay great again i'm just sort of tr trying to tease out things here uh, do you in your church wash one another's feet any hands for anyone who's who does that in their church has ever done that once okay yeah by choice or because you believed you were doing something that was a biblical... Um, no, it was, it was a metaphor, I think, for yeah. serving one another. Yeah. yeah. Was it a particular time of year, do you remember? Uh, no. Right. Yeah. Easter, okay. Why, why Easter, do you think? Yeah, because of the story of Jesus, do Yeah, yeah, okay. So some churches will say, no, this is actually a core part of how we celebrate Easter. And some churches will say, not only Easter, every time we meet. Like, so interesting, the application of principle. Um, do you... Are you part of a church that celebrates communion? Hands up if the answer is yes. 
Okay, wonderful, everyone. Uh, <laughs> second question. Hands up if you celebrate communion every time you meet together as a church. One. Every Sunday? Yep. Okay. Uh, hands up if you celebrate communion outside of the Sunday gathering, but if you're having a meal together, say in a midweek group or something like that. Yep. A couple of hands. Not regularly. Not regularly, but sometimes. It's permissible, not in for Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, do you practice the following at your church? Do you encourage people to lift hands in worship? I've just got you all to lift your hands. So <laughs> you're more Pentecostal than you think. I tricked you into it. <laughs> so not encouraged. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that's interesting, is it? No, not discouraged. Freedom in worship. Yeah. And that would be my experience, definitely. Great. That would be my experience, except that sometimes there are times where you talk about worship and you think, um, actually, you're working through a psalm, and the psalmist says. Lift up our hands, lift up your voice, bow before the Lord. And we have to say, actually, this, or dance before the Lord. Like, I've never said, thou shalt dance in my church. Like, but there are ways of talking about this. So this is actually part of a culturally appropriate way of expressing worship. Let's try this sort of thing. So, yeah, interesting. Okay, um, do you greet one another with a holy kiss? COVID, yay. <laughs> COVID, yay. <laughs> okay, spot the introvert in the room. <laughs> Don't spot the introvert in the room. He'll be terrified about that. <laughs> no, I, I get it. I get it. Um, does, anyone, um, does anyone practice the holy kiss? No one greeted me with the holy kiss. When I came. What does it look like? You hug. Only if you're married to them. Interesting. Yep. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I can see this has left you with some deep traumatic things to process. <laughs> was I engaging in holy kissing or was it just... <laughs> Great, okay, fantastic. Well, my point is, my point is, we are all engaging at some level with the task of hermeneutics. We're saying, we know that the Bible talks about particular things, but we're wrestling with how to apply it in our context. And some of us aren't doing that, actually. We're just in church contexts where that has been done for us. And sometimes we just don't question um, the culture of the church. And we assume there's a reason for it, and sometimes there is a reason for it, and sometimes it's just that the pastor hasn't thought that through or, or knows how to apply it. But the point is that all of us are doing something to take what Scripture talks about as a norm and sometimes actually seems to instruct and then say, well, what does that look like in our context? And that is the task of hermeneutics, and it can be challenging. So let's work out how to do this. And actually, let's skip over uh, 13 and go to number 14. Um, there is a journey that we have to go on to try and work this stuff out. And this beautiful diagram uh, is a diagram of the interpretive journey. Um, this is adapted from a book called Grasping God's Word, which is quite helpful uh, on the end of the these notes you'll find some suggestions and if you do want to wrestle with how to read the bible a bit more uh, this can be quite helpful it's kind of like a workbook that you work through with various different exercises and things um, i'd recommend this or maybe how to read the bible for all it's worth one of those would be would be good um, but this is adapted from there and basically it sees the process of working out how to move from exegesis to hermeneutics as being a journey and it imagines it like this so step one is exegesis it's what we talked about previously. It's how to grasp the text in their world. What did it mean to the original audience? What was God's word to them? 
Um, and it's about asking the right questions about context and content that we've talked about already. But then you need to engage with the task of hermeneutics, which is to say not only what was God's word to them, uh, but what is God's word to us. And this takes a number of steps, which I'll just go through really quickly because I want to get us to some group work to actually do this stuff. But step two, having worked out what the text meant, is to then say, well, what is the width of the river to cross? What is the difference between the biblical audience's con context and situation and ours? And for some, actually, it's just really simple. <laughs> like, it's not not hard at all. That like, is very, very straightforward. And some it's worlds away because of language or time or culture or law or a whole load of different things that mean that the gap between us and them is just vast and figuring out how on earth you get across that gap, that cultural gap, can be a huge challenge. So it's worth like grappling with the text and saying what is different about this text uh, to my situation. And actually if you flick ahead to the next page just for a moment, uh, we won't go through this, but this is a summary of a day's teaching on page 15, but essentially these are some questions to grapple with as you work through this process. So what are the differences between our worlds? Might be culture, language, time, situation, uh, place in redemptive history, which is, I just mean like place in the story. Um, how do we engage? Are we in the Abraham bit of the story where they engaged with God a particular way? Are we in the Moses part? You know, where are we and what's the gap between our worlds? How big is the gap? It's the kind of question you want to work out. Is this going to be easy or is this going to be a massive leap to apply this to our world? Step three, and I've sort of broken this into two bits really, is to cross the principalizing bridge. Not my language theirs, but the point is, if I'm going to get from their world to our world, I need a bridge. And that bridge is going to be a principle that crosses the gap. So what is the principle that is present in this text that is going to help me apply that situation to my world? Principles should be present in the text where possible. Um, so if I'm reading something and it's talking about money or generosity or, or whatever it happens to be, I'm looking for what is the principle here that is going to be timeless, that is going to be like, it's not about application. It's like what's the principle that is getting applied, knowing that that principle will always be true at any point in time. Um, and it's something I've got from the text it's timeless, it's not culturally bound, and it's consistent with the rest of scripture, because that's going to be the bridge that's going to get us across um, to the new world. Now, just an extra step here from the Old Testament is to say, well, actually, the New Testament may change or challenge or enlighten something about the context. So sometimes if I'm working with an Old Testament text, I can't go straight from Old Testament to my life. It might be like I need to build half a bridge to a little island in the middle called the New Testament, and then from the New Testament across again. So if I'm grappling with something in the Old Testament, I might need to say, did Jesus say anything about that? Or did Paul say anything about that that changes or clarifies or builds upon the principle so I know how to get to there and to me? Does that kind of make sense? This is quite abstract, but hopefully it'll make sense when we actually apply it. Um, then the fourth text, the fourth step is to grasp the text in our world and to say, well, how should individual Christians today apply that theological principle? Recognising that actually the application for me may be completely different to the application from them. But if the principle is the same, genuinely the same, then it might be right that my application is different to their application. And what you'll see here in the picture is that there isn't just one house here, there are two houses. Actually, there should be many, many houses because actually there could be many different applications that are biblical and God-honouring 
uh, and you may apply a text in the right way for you, and that may be different to how I apply the text. And that doesn't mean that we've gone weird and postmodern and relative and we just say anything goes, but rather what it recognises is the fact that I might live in a different culture to you, even within the UK or different like housing areas. or like Your application may look different to mine. We're both honouring the text if the theological principle is the same. Then broaden that out to different parts of the world, like how do believers in... Afghanistan right now, who are going through stuff that's vastly different to us. How do they grapple with particular texts? How do we grapple with particular texts where the worst we're facing right now is a rush on petrol? <laughs> like, like how, how do we deal with that? How do we deal with the fact that actually in five years' time, people's cultural pressures may be different for us, an application that worked for us may not work for them. It's not wrong to say that application could look different to different people. Actually, if the principle is the same, application should look different to different people. So that's the kind of journey that we need to go on uh, and some of the kind of questions that we need to ask. Um, and by the time we've reached at step four, we've landed it in our world, um, we should have been able to move from an abstract principle like God cares about generosity to, and this means this is how I am going to live out this text in this particular way. I'm going to do something because the text should move us to not only hear the word, understand the word, but enact the word in our lives as well. Does that make sense as a kind of an abstract journey to go on? Great. Now, of course, the way that we do that is a challenge. Um, and so the challenge is yours now. I'm going to get you to actually go through this journey a little bit with a couple of texts. So on pages 16 and 17, you've got a, four um, passages and I think I've actually chosen, I've chosen all four from the New Testament. So hopefully it'll be a bit more familiar and you won't have to worry about that step from Old Testament to New uh, to us. Um, and what I'd like to do is just break us into groups. And I'm going to give us 10, 10 minutes max. 10 minutes. So we'll be really quick. Um, so don't worry about fulfilling all of this. Don't worry about going through and just being like asking all the questions. <laughs> like do this quickly and intuitively um, not in a sort of mechanistic way and try and get as far through the journey as you possibly can I'm sorry it's such a short journey but ask essentially like from what I can tell very quickly what was God's word to them how wide is the river to cross like how different is the cultural situation here to in my life what might be the principle that bridges the gap and how could I apply the principle in my life today and we're going to group people we're going to go for four groups so let's go for I'll divide you into four groups, but you're welcome to do it on your tables, so we don't have an intermingling of tables if that's easier. So um, these two tables, um, and you don't have to work together, feel free to work separately. Um, you can do the Good Samaritan from Luke 10. Uh, the back two tables, you can do Washing Feet from John 13. Uh, the back two tables on my right, your left, um, you, you can do the Holy Kiss, by which I mean read the passage and work out. <laughs> I mean, if you feel confident to go to it. Uh, We'll be watching. And then uh, you guys down here, uh, oh, with the, with the wonderful purple. You can do hairstyles, jewellery and fine clothes. Yes, I already know what conclusion you're coming to. So great. Um, so actually, I'll give you, I'll check in about eight minutes, see how you're doing. I know this is going to be ridiculously fast, but that's okay. Go forth and work it out. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Uh, that was ludicrously fast, but I'm sure you've sorted it all. Um, 
<laughs> so let's us, let us just quite quickly go through these. And like I say, I'm not expecting you to have, I mean, you definitely haven't done all the hard work of reading commentaries and asking all those questions because I haven't allowed you time to do that. But um, I hope this gives you a feel for what it's like to try and work out some of this stuff and we can work it out together. So don't worry if you haven't got that far through it. But uh, Good Samaritan Group, which was, I think, these tables, wasn't it, here? Um, he, would someone like to talk us through at least the first box or the first couple of boxes? We talked about um, the, our neighbour, who is our neighbour. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it stems from, you know, um, Leviticus, you know, is being one of, you know, a neighbour is one of yeah. your own people. Yeah. <laughs> and, and what that means. And yeah. So, so what was God's word to them originally? It was to do with loving your neighbour, yeah. right? Yeah. The question is, who is our neighbour? <laughs> and uh, how we work that out. So how wide is the river to cross between the story of the Good Samaritan and where we are today? What are some of the things that are different or similar between their context and our context? There was particular cultural norms of who should Yeah. 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 Okay. And in some ways, there is, depending on who's answering this question, really. Yeah. Great. So that's a brilliant uh, thing to recognise, isn't it? So there are different cultural norms shaped by the law, um, like you said, Leviticus, um, but also by probably a fair amount of racism as well, and and uh, also other cultural factors going on there. Um, and so even just recognising that for some people this will be a big gap and some people this might be a smaller gap is, is really important. Um, yeah, so there are a whole load of things that make the bridge or the river um, quite difficult to cross. So we're in a different place in salvation history. There's some kind of relationship between the Jews and the uh, Samaritans. You've got to understand how did that come about and what did that look like and how much of that was rooted in the law and how much of that was cultural. Um, and a different culture, like bandits and inns and riding on donkeys and all that sort of stuff. Um, maybe that's how you rock up here, I don't know. But like, <laughs> where I'm living, well, there are bandits. <laughs> um, I've been mugged, but yeah, it's, it's, um, yeah, it's different, isn't it? Okay, so there are different things. Great. So what do you think might be the timeless principle that bridges the gap between their world and our world? So not thinking about application, what might be a timeless principle Okay, yep, so something to do with the, yeah, God places value on each of us equally, yep. Um, showing mercy. Showing mercy, yeah. Compassion, yeah. Love, yeah, so love God, love your neighbour, show compassion, show mercy, because all are somehow made in the image of God. That is a principle that is true in their world and in our world. Now, how might that work out in our world um, will look different for all of us probably, with the different groups that we interact with, some of the different prejudices we have that we have to face up to. And some people in different parts of the world or different classes or different whatever will have different um, prejudices against particular groups of people or particular people based on a whole load of factors, some of which could be um, because they've experienced things negatively or because their culture has told them you must view a particular people this way. And so we need to ask the question, well, how do we land that in our world? And I think the application will be basically, we need to care for everyone. We need to love 
God and our neighbour, but it won't be the case that I only go around thinking, I would only enact this parable if I met a Samaritan. I would be kind to a Samaritan, but nobody else. Because then what I would do would be, I would be the bad person in the story, wouldn't I? So I need to say, well, who is it that I am not inclined to show love and mercy to? And how do I therefore confront my own prejudice, recognising that my prejudice may be different from yours and yours and yours? And, and so what does it look like in my context? My context may change as I move context or the demographic changes or cultural shifts and particular people have viewed a particular way. So it's about constantly saying, where am I in this story? Does that make sense? And then just the extent of how much mercy, how much love and yeah. what does that look like for that community? Yeah, how much and what, what does mercy look like and where is it practical? Where, 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 I mean, you could how even go... For, am I expected to give? Yeah. yeah, and are there times where actually giving financially enable something that's unhealthy rather than, you know, they talk about help that hurts. And so there are difficult questions to get into there. But yeah, great. So going on that journey, it is a logical journey to go on, um, even if we haven't fully landed it. Um, that's all that time gives us. So <laughs> next group towards the back, um, the, the foot washers. <laughs> John 13. Um, what was God's word to the original um, people? Yeah, serve one another and be humble. Let me take you back a bit. I think that's actually the principle that crosses the bridge. What was specifically the word to those people? Was to do those things by washing one another's feet. Okay, so that's that's literally what's going on there. Um, So you're right. (laughs) I just wanted a bit more specific because then we've got to ask the question, well, what's different about their culture and our culture today? So how big is the gap to cross? Um, well, we won't. <laughs> but why not? Why not? All right, yeah. So we wear shoes. We're not in a dusty... Yeah, yeah. Okay, so there are cultural things that are different there. Um, also, um, just the way that people sat. Um, if this was a meal time, we didn't sit around tables like this. People would often lie down on the ground and they would lie with their head up one end and their feet by someone else's head so so it mattered and so when you go to someone's house for dinner like you no one wants dirty dusty feet well no one wants feet at all in their face but given that that was a thing like it would also often be something that the host would be required to do is to enable the washing of the feet but the host wouldn't do it themselves they would have a servant who would do that for them because it was a lowly thing to do so Jesus actually in doing that for himself was taking on the role of the host and the servant which is a radical thing to do, and then saying, I want all of you to do this thing that none of you really want to do (laughs) um, for one another. Um, And he does very specifically say, he doesn't say, um, serve one another in whatever way is culturally appropriate. He says to these people for whom that was a culturally appropriate thing, wash one another's feet. Now, the principle that bridges the gap is, as you said, uh, serve one another lovingly. So what does it look like for us to do that today, do we need to wash one another's feet? The church, probably not. <laughs> uh, no, thankfully not. <laughs> we're not get, this isn't how we're going to end the day. It's, uh, Tom is actually preparing basins and uh, you're all going to come and wash my feet. No, um, the church has not actually largely made this a mandatory practice throughout church history. Churches have often done it at particular times like Easter as a symbolic way of representing the principle but people have often recognised that actually the principle is not the end goal. Um, what might it look like to do an equivalent of that today in our church settings? Washing mugs out of the house group. 
Yeah, there you go. Wash it. Yeah. Yeah. Put the chairs away. Yeah. Serving tea. Serving tea. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, doing things that often, I mean, all of those are, are really like not things that are beneath any of us, are they? But there is an element to actually doing the things you don't want to do or that actually culturally might be considered beneath you, but doing them for, yeah, someone else. Great. And it will look different for different people, depending on who we're interacting with, different stages of life, different cultures, all those sorts of things. But the principle is we need to be willing to do whatever today's equivalent of washing feet might be. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, holy kisses. Um, I've, we're all on tenterhooks. <laughs> Help us out here. <laughs> what was God's word to the Corinthians? Specifically to them. Greet one another to a holy kiss. Um, I mean, we had a joke earlier, like, only if you're married to them. Is, is that specifically, or is it to everyone? Who must you greet? One another, one another right? Not just your, your spouse. Okay, so within the context of the church, specifically, greet one another with a holy kiss. Yeah, great. Um, how wide is the river to, con- to cross between their context and ours? What, what are some of the differences? Yeah. Okay, so we don't live in Corinth. Um, so there's something different about that setting, perhaps? Um, Oh, yeah, 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 greet one another. So it could be, yeah, men greeting men with a holy kiss, women greeting women, and, and presumably across genders as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is... Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So we're all like, oh, what are we doing? This guy's like, bring it on. I'm in Spain. <laughs> when in Spain... <laughs> uh, <laughs> I love the fact that I'm just not giving you a chance to defend yourself here. But yeah, there's something culturally different. Yeah, and that's important, isn't it? Because the gap may be different for some cultures and not different for others. Yeah, some other... Sorry, go for it. Hmm. Yeah. Yes. That's right, yes. So there, so something within different places in the ancient world where the principle was still applicable. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but the question there would be, have we therefore got something wrong that, and we've lessened what greeting is meant to be and lessened what church is meant to be by no longer treating one another as family? So, um, hold, hold that thought. Uh, yeah, go for it. And then I'll... Um, I was just thinking about in our culture, um, like a kiss is always a very intimate thing mm, mm. Um, and generally romantic. Yeah. Um, Yes. And perhaps, yeah, um, we maybe have that disconnect between biological families and church yeah. families in that sense of yeah. Brilliant. What that intimate relationship looks like. So to pick up on that and not prejudging your conclusions, but um, uh, I didn't see you guys kissing one another, so I'm assuming that you've come to a similar conclusion to where, where I'm going in this. Um, actually, your point is 
brilliant. In our context, kissing may be something that is considered intimate or sexual. And so actually simply going, well, Paul said this, we'll do this, could be an incredibly inappropriate thing to do. Like particularly, well, cross-genders or however, like um, it could give the wrong impression or it could just be really unwise and really unsafe, particularly in the era of Me Too and all. You know, there could be horrible ways of abusing this by simply going, Paul said it, let's do it. And it could actually undermine the point what you say is a holy kiss could actually be something deeply unholy if, if we apply it in the wrong way or apply it at all. Like, so the question now is what principle bridges the gap? And I think it is to somehow treat one another like family, um, not like business executives. <laughs> so what might that look like today? What, should we greet one another with a holy kiss? Um, sorry? A hug. a hug, yeah. Yeah? An elbow bump? Well, yes, I mean, COVID is, adds another level to this, doesn't it? So, you, I mean, you guys, sort of, given that you've done the, like, what do you think might be a, a, an equivalent today? I think, like, the way that you usually greet someone as yeah. a masculine, you're probably doing it Yeah, yeah. Yeah, great. Could be any number of things. I rugby tackle my brother. <laughs> I'm not going to do that to you, because I, <laughs> you'd be glad to know, but, like, because I don't, have the same relationship to you but I might just want to I don't know most of you in the room but I consider myself family with you and so they've got to be culturally appropriate ways that may mean that actually I approach each of you differently partly because of gender partly because of age partly because of familiarity and what people are comfortable with all those sorts of things but what I'm having to do probably in 30 different ways here is say how can I express family with you in a culturally appropriate way and recognizing that actually say people from Spain came to our our churches and that was more culturally acceptable for them, they might be shocked, but they may just feel like this is a really cold church. Do they care about us? And so there actually be, may be times where we have to go a little bit out of our comfort zone to greet people in a way that makes them feel, yeah, drawn in. I think as well, though, um, we can do all these things and they can become almost automatic, mm. you know, like, let's all share the grace, and it becomes a kind of a thing yeah. rather than with any necessary any meaning. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so it may look completely different for all of us, but I think the principle is treat one another like family and the way that outworks will be different and um, will be different between me and a friend may deepen over time and change over time. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I think probably when it says greet one another with a holy kiss, a holy kiss is not a particular type of kiss, like <laughs> do it this particular way. <laughs> um, it's, it's more like it becomes, it's a kiss that becomes holy because of the, the context in which you do it. It's holy because it recognises there's something of family here. Yeah. Okay, uh, you, you guys over here, um, hairstyle, jewellery and fine clothes. Talk us through, talk us through that. <clears throat> What's God's word there?
Yeah, okay. Great. So specifically, the instruction is twofold. It's um, your beauty should be in your inner self, not in your outward appearance. Therefore, the instruction is women don't wear particular adornments or hairstyles. That was specifically to that context. Ah, yes, yes, yeah. So there's an... Uh, So I don't think the instruction is don't wear them. It's that your beauty should not come from those things. Yeah, the focus isn't on the outward, the focus is on the inward. Yes, yeah, exactly, yes. And I'm, to be clear, women especially. (laughs) I'm not about to say you're all thinners. Like, like I'm I'm, I'm trying to tease this out. So there's a principle interwoven with that application that I think actually Peter is probably saying this because the principle is having particular outworkings of particular women wearing particular things that he thinks are unhelpful and coming from an unhelpful place. So the application of the principle is there are probably certain things that are appropriate and inappropriate to wear in the church space. So I, th- I, think, I think the early church would restrict the wearing of particular things, but what an it's an application of the principle. Exactly. Yes, yes. And so now the question is, sorry? Yes, yeah, definitely. So the problem is when we get fixated on the application and say, well, this is definitely what I meant there, and therefore we must just apply the application straight over here, it's not that easy because there's a gap between the two. So what is different between their culture and our culture? Or what's the same? Yeah. Yeah, there are all sorts of things going on there. Yeah. Do I think it's similar? Do I think it? No, I'm, I'm not answering that. It's <laughs> Do you think it's similar? Right. No, I'm, I'm asking you. Do you think it's similar? Or do you think it's a big gap or a small? Okay. Why do you think it's similar? Yeah. 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 I don't think it's as big as some, some of the other ones. Yeah. And this is actually the thing, that sometimes it can be very small um, because, as you rightly drawn out, there's a principle in this passage. It doesn't just go... If, if Peter had just said, women, don't wear gold, don't wear jewellery, don't braid your hair in a particular way, and given us no principle, we would have had to work really hard at that. But what he does is he gives us the principle and he gives us a hint as to how that would outwork in that particular community. The principle is quite obvious, isn't it? And the internal beauty versus external beauty thing is something that translates really easily to our world. But even then... The way it may work out may be different according to different parts of the world, parts of the country, demographics and age groups. And it's actually something that's really hard to quantify because I could easily, I'm not saying I do this, but any one of us could easily look at someone and make a judgment on what's going on in their heart. Wow, they wear a lot of jewellery, they must be covering up for something. Like, and that was an awful thing to do, to think that you can judge someone's heart like that. Um, so... What it's saying is there's a principle here which actually may look different for different people. Uh, and what's important is the heart. And the way that get out worked in a really unhealthy way is when churches police it and go, you must not wear that or that or that. And some churches do do that. Um, and some of that can come out of a good place. I think there's a place for talking about modesty. But also, some, sometimes it's really unhelpful. It's actually doing the opposite of this problem. It's 
making a judgment based on external standards of beauty rather than getting to the heart. So it's more dynamic, isn't it? Yeah. No, I was going to say, actually, I do think, in one sense, the, the river's quite wide, but when you, when, when you, when you boil it down to, to the principle that... Boiled down the river. Okay. <laughs> you boiled, that's one way of getting rid of the river. <laughs> so, so the principle's very simple, and, and we've described the principle yeah. of being the heart, and, but, but actually the, the culture between... Uh, and, and it's that principle that does cross it, but... The, the culture now and the culture then are very, yeah. very different. Yeah. Um, they're very, very male-dominated. Uh, mm. Now we've got you know, a lot more with gender, gender politics and equal opportunity. And, um, uh, submission is just seen as one of those really, really opposite words to what we're trying to get people to be. Mm. Because submission, because our society is all about... Um, individual rights and freedom of individual mm -hmm. expression mm -hmm. and so the whole concept that within a relationship that you have a submission you have a submission mm. it, that that really really jars and so, so yes so that there are some elements where there is quite a, yes a wide yes yeah but actually when you take it to the yep. to the principle of don't go from to the outward in uh, so braiding of hair for example mm. um, i understand um different hairstyles denoted where you were status-wise. Mm -hmm. yeah. So so that you, by looking at someone, you knew that they were positioning themselves here. Yes. And, and, it was, and it was all of that that, yeah. that actually, I think, yeah. forward. Yeah. So there, there are multiple levels of things to get through. One is that in our culture, uh, and we need to wrap up, actually, so I'm just conscious of time, but um, is that submission to anything is a problem <laughs> for a lot of people. Um, then added to that is the fact that if people apply this in a heavy-handed way, then some churches will basically say, here's what you can wear and here's what you can't wear. And then the submission is to often male-led standards of beauty <laughs> um, rather than attending to the heart, which is therefore to turn this passage on its head because the point of this is actually standards of beauty that are culturally uh, communicated are not the main point. The point is the heart. So... Um, so we can actually completely damage and misapply this if we, in the process of thinking, we're applying this in a really biblical way. What's most important is getting to the heart, and that requires conversation and honesty with ourselves and honesty with one another and an attitude that's not a policing one from the front that just says, well, here's what to do, here's what not to do. I, as the preacher, tell you that and I expect you to... Like, that, that is a bad application. So it's a weird one where actually the gap can be huge in some areas and tiny in others. Um, and this is why we have to improvise this together and we have to work this out together and be in community where, where we can say, and men need to do this as well. <laughs> Am I living up to an unhealthy standard here? And let's talk about this and help me, help me to know. And we have to trust and invite one another to speak into our lives. So maybe that, I don't know if that was the more controversial of the four and maybe we shouldn't have ended there, but um, I hope you see what I'm trying to do there is not therefore go... Um, let me as a white man tell you, or like that's, that's exactly not what I'm trying to do. What I'm trying to say is this stuff is dynamic and it's difficult, but this is actually part of the joy and the challenge of scripture, isn't it? God is inviting us to improvise this fifth act together. And I think the fact that we will apply this differently in our culture to other cultures is something beautiful and brilliant and shouldn't be 
anything to be nervous about. It's actually part of the delight of the fact that we're part of a global church that is stretched through time and will continue to do so until Jesus comes again. And, and, and the challenge for all of us is to live faithfully to the story he has written and the story that he is writing through us. Um, so that, I think, is the joy of, of, of Scripture. And just to close then, really, I just, I mean, if we had time, I would end where we started, which is Psalm 1. Um, you know, the, the, the person who prospers is the one who meditates on the, not the law of God, the instructions of God, day and night, over and over, through a lifetime. And the word there translated is, is hagar. It means to, to mutter. Uh, which I love. You know, sometimes if I know I've got a sermon coming up or a difficult conversation or something, I play that over in my head. And so I must look insane because I'm walking around and I'm just muttering. I'm just mumbling. I'm thinking, oh, I wonder if that, that, and probably not out loud, but I'm muttering it in my mouth. And that's what we're meant to do with scripture. It's meant to be on our tongues all the time as we're turning it over. And it's not just an academic principle. It's something that we walk around with and it's there in our lives. And, and probably I might mutter out something and someone goes, oh, that's interesting. That connects with that. Or you're totally way off on that. And there's something about that just general turning over scripture in your mind and your heart and your mouth that is meant to be with us all the time. And that's how we get the best out of this book not just through an isolated time here or there where we go through a rigid structure, but as we actually kind of allow it to dwell in our mouth and in our minds and in our hearts and then outwork into our lives. And so this has been a sprawling day <laughs> and we probably covered half of what I thought we would cover um, and probably some stuff that may have been really helpful and challenging or, or odd and we'll apply it as you go through the course. And so I really do hope that there will be moments as you go through these next two years where you're like, oh, that's what he was talking about. Why didn't he put it like that the first time? But this is part of the beauty of doing it together. And, and actually... Just to say one final thing, which is that this is, the, this is a great way of doing theology. Like you can read books by yourself. You could go away and read The Bible Project and do it by yourself in your bedroom watching videos and get so far by yourself. But actually, it's when we do it together and we hear one another's perspective. I have learned things through this day and seen things differently because of the questions and interactions we've had. And that's the way this is meant to be. So can I just encourage you to make the most of this community? Uh, this is a safe place to engage with the Bible together. And I'm excited to come back and continue learning with you but thank you for listening thank you for your questions and